The same spirit that was essential for the earthly work of Christ is necessary for you. He is indispensable. Your experience of salvation is based on Christ, the cross, and your confession. But how did you receive the reality of your regeneration? How did you know your heart had been cleansed? That, my friend, is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of the Lord that places the message in your very soul. You can't find adequate words to describe or explain it, but you know it is as valid as life itself. If that reality is so strong, so deep, and so personal, then how real is the one who gives it? It's a significant question. How real must be the messenger if the message is so real? The Holy Spirit longs for a daily, ongoing personal relationship with you. He wants to make an entrance a mighty entrance into your life. Room for the Spirit or generations, people have been led to believe that the Spirit is an it. From a thousand voices, millions of written words, and an attitude that has permeated the Christian faith, we have been programmed to think of the Holy Ghost as a something rather than as a someone. If I heard a chorus recently that said, give me more of you. And I thought, why, that sounds scriptural. You can't take a part of him. He's a person. You can't break him into little pieces, an arm this week and a leg the next. It's not, give me more of you. It's exactly the opposite. You should be crying out to the Spirit, please, take more of me. He doesn't surrender to you. No. You surrender to him. Without a doubt, the most overlooked message of the church today is that the Holy Spirit is real and we must make a place for him. Sad, isn't it? Ministers of the gospel by the thousands do not comprehend the workings of the Spirit on planet Earth. I'm afraid they've been programmed, too. From Sunday school to seminary, they have been led to believe that the Spirit is a minor member of the Godhead who came at Pentecost and has been floating in the clouds ever since. Many actually avoid speaking his name lest people confuse them with one of those off-the-wall charismatics. God intended that the church be alive and vibrant. Just before he returned to heaven, Jesus uttered the unforgettable words, These signs will follow those who believe. Mark 16:17. Perhaps the most puzzling question I have as a minister is this. If the Holy Spirit was sent to give Christians power to live a victorious life, why are so many despondent and defeated? When I was an evangelist, I went to a church, conducted a rally, prayed for the needs of the people, and returned to my home. I really did not know what was taking place in the daily lives of the people. But now that I am a pastor, my perspective has totally changed. And I am disturbed by what I see. I now realize that infinitely more people have major problems than I ever dreamed possible. That so many believers are disheartened, dejected, on the verge of spiritual bankruptcy is almost unthinkable. Repeatedly I see tiny problems creep into people's lives and then suddenly emerge as Goliaths or Mount Everest's. Father God, I ask, where is the victory? Where is the joy? Just last week our congregation experienced a mighty outpouring of the Spirit on Sunday night. As I ministered to the people, I sensed an unusual anointing. On the way home I was shouting, Hallelujah! I said to my wife, Suzanne, what a great service! Isn't it wonderful what God is doing here? But just as I walked in the door of our home, the phone rang. And for the next 30 minutes I heard the heartbreaking story of a man who had been in that very service. He cried and cried as he told me, I just don't know where to turn. It happens over and over again. Who's got the power? What's wrong? 
Why is it that the early church had such power and we have so little of it? With one word they commanded demons to depart, and we seem so fearful and alarmed. Just mention demons, and Christians do the hundred yard dash. Many pastors won't even talk about them, as if ignoring the topic would drive them out. It's difficult to understand. Instead of preaching to people that they can be free, many ministers keep a silence that leaves many in bondage. Rather than obey the words of Christ, they shall cast out devils, Mark 16:17. they tell their people that what is really going on doesn't exist and it's all in their minds. And the people murmur, Lord, I can't find an answer. I can't find help. Is it any wonder that some cultists have more power than some Christians? Should we be surprised when satanic followers demonstrate more of the supernatural than early followers of Christ? How is it possible? If God is omnipotent and Satan has such a tiny fraction of power, how can a disciple of the devil operate with any authority? It's really very simple. A person who uses 100% of just a tiny fraction has more power than someone who can tap into the energy of the universe but doesn't even try. I am deeply troubled when I think about a sinner receiving more from Satan than a believer who asks nothing from God can receive. It's time you begin to exercise the power of the Almighty. You need to know that God is greater than any demon and that only one word from Jesus destroys the devil. Just one of his angels can bind Satan in the pit. Rev. 21-3. God is not weak his people are. Here's the only conclusion I have been able to reach. The reason the church and so many people in it have become so defeated is that it has ignored the most powerful person in the universe the Holy Spirit. Again, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, Zech. 4, 6. And the next words are just as exciting, Who are you, O great mountain? You shall become a plain, V. 7. You need more than a caterpillar tractor to level the mammoth pile of rocks that stands before you. It's a giant mountain of futility and fear. And the excavation you need is only possible through the energizing power of the Holy Spirit. Real, not counterfeit God, throughout his word, gives a prescription for breaking the yoke of bondage. He knows exactly what it takes to lift your heavy burden. It is called the anointing, it shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. Isa. 10.27 As God removed Israel's burden, so also will he remove the yoke from you. After all, Satan is the treacherous one that has placed that heavy yoke upon you. But Jesus, who declared that the bondage would be destroyed, said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11.30 The ever-tightening yoke can be broken by the Spirit. But not just for that moment. It's not a temporary solution. He stays with you, continuing to lift the burden and to guide you on a brand new path. The Apostle John, speaking of the Spirit, wrote, The anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. 1 John 2:27. It doesn't take a ph.d to be able to discern who has an anointing and who doesn't. Even an unregenerate sinner flipping a television dial during the Sunday morning God slot knows the touch of the Spirit when he sees it. He recognizes it because, like a diamond, it is so rare. There is nothing more tragic than people who don't have an anointing trying to produce it. 
They try to force it, but the touch of the Lord is just not there. How many times have you traveled to hear a great speaker or Bible teacher only to find out that the person is just an empty shell, that there is nothing but knowledge on the inside? Filled with facts and information but absolutely lifeless, they are walking and talking but their words are dead. I'll never forget what happened at a conference I attended on the West Coast. In an afternoon session a young man was introduced to sing. With a tremendous, well-trained voice he sang The King is Coming. All the people enjoyed it, and they gave him a great applause when he had finished. I don't know how it happened, but in the evening service a lady sang exactly the same song. Frankly, she didn't look like a singer, her voice was a little nasal, and some of the notes were off pitch. But she had something else that made up for those deficiencies a thousand times over. By the time she got to the second chorus, people were on their feet. Their hands were raised to heaven. The power in that place was electric. And it didn't stop when she finished. We praised the Lord and praised Him again. Then we began to applaud for the longest time. But we weren't giving the singer an ovation. We were applauding the giver of song. What made the difference? My friend, it was the anointing. It was the power of the Spirit in that lady's life. During my ministry in Canada, we were one of the sponsoring groups of a Billy Graham crusade. The preparations for the meetings were as organized as anything I'd ever seen. And the services themselves were tame compared to what I was used to. But when Graham began to speak, there was an unmistakable touch of the Spirit on his message. The content was Christ, but I could tell I was in the presence of a man who has a deep personal fellowship with the Spirit. Words that stunned the synagogue since creation people have been fascinated by the anointing. It has been marveled at, manifested, and even mimicked. But the true anointing has always been and still remains a function of God the Holy Spirit. What is its purpose? So that you might proclaim the message with power. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Isa. 61, 1-2 But those are not just the words of an Old Testament prophet. Jesus quoted them to a stunned audience at the synagogue in Nazareth, Luke 4:18-19. You must never forget that to understand the Holy Spirit you must know that He is God. That description may seem foreign to you, but it is as basic as the Word itself. He was the power of creation. Do you recall the words in the book of Job? The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Job 33, 4. While God the Father was in heaven on the throne of glory saying, Let us make man, the Holy Spirit was doing his work on earth. Even the second verse states that at creation the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, General 1, 2. And the psalmist, speaking of the creatures on earth, wrote, you send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the earth, B.S. 104, 30. If you want the anointing of the spirit to become evident in your life, it begins with an understanding of who he is, how he operates, and how you can enter into his fellowship. The Holy Spirit was not sent just to make you feel good. He'll certainly do that, but he is much more. He has equality in the Godhead and deserves our worship just as do God the Father and God the Son. But that is just the start. Your spiritual growth is not different from that of a giant oak tree. It must be fed and nourished. What do I do next? Recently a man told me, Benny, 
I want to thank you for introducing me to the Holy Spirit in 1978. I said, that's great. Tell me what's been happening since. His face was a blank as he said, well, nothing really. I just remember what it was like when I met him. Why do you think nothing has happened? I asked. I'll never forget his reply, I guess I didn't know what to do. Perhaps I've expected every person who's been introduced to the spirit to respond as I did. I literally shut myself away with the word and the spirit and absorbed what he had to offer like a sponge. It took time, hundreds and hundreds of hours with the precious Holy Spirit. I realize that for many people it's nearly impossible to find the time to search and search the scriptures. But just by reading this book you are receiving in a succinct manner what it took the spirit years to share with me. But there is one thing I cannot do for you. I can't wave a spiritual wand over your head and place an anointing on you. That only comes with a personal, deeply private encounter with the Spirit. And it continues and grows with a fellowship and communion that only you can establish. Your growth in the Spirit will begin the moment you begin to see that the Spirit of God is truly God. I can't repeat it enough because the mental picture of a weak personality has been drilled into our psyche from childhood. I remember seeing a book that said, the Holy Spirit is a servant to the body of Christ. That's the kind of error I'm talking about. He's not a servant. He's in charge. He's the leader of the body of Christ. Let me share something I have come to know. The Holy Spirit is not only God. He's also the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before you say, now hold it there, Benedictus, let me point you to the word. You say, I thought God the Father was the Father of Jesus. Well, you're right, but you're also wrong. Let me show you why. In the first chapter of the Gospels we are told that the Holy Ghost is the Father of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit, Matt. 1.18. Even Mary was concerned. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born shall be called the Son of God, Luke 1:34-35. There you have it. He is called the Son of God, but it was the Holy Spirit that came upon the Mother of Christ. That's the closeness of the Trinity a child of God the Father and a child of God the Spirit in one. Even the attributes of Jesus were given him by the Spirit. Speaking of the coming Christ, Isaiah wrote, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Isa. 11, 1-2 Who is the Father? Jesus Christ is a child of the Spirit. And just as earthly parents love their little baby, so the Holy Ghost loved the Lord. Have you ever seen a proud father hold a newborn in his arms, squeeze it tight, and love it? I think we forget that the Holy Spirit has emotions too. He loves what he has created. That's why he wants to place his arms around you. Can you see God the Father in heaven saying to the Spirit, take my son and make him flesh? It was the miracle of miracles. The Holy Spirit took that seed and placed it within Mary's body. But not only was he the father of the Lord. He was also the one who anointed him. Picture, if you will, God the Father, sitting on his throne in heaven and Jesus on earth healing the sick and performing miracles. 
and what about the Holy Ghost? He's the channel, the contact between both personalities. Now the father picks up the phone as if he needed one and says, Holy Spirit? Yes, sir, says the spirit as he picks up the receiver. God says, I want you to lead Jesus into the wilderness because I'm going to send the devil to test him. The spirit says, yes, sir, and rushes to Christ. Jesus, come along with me, he says. Do you see how the Holy Spirit is the contact between both personalities? Or picture this. Jesus is walking past a man who is very sick. Again, the father picks up the phone and says, Holy Spirit? Stop Jesus. Tell him to halt right where he is. The Spirit says, Okay. Jesus, stop. He speaks into the phone and says, Father, what should he do? Tell him to heal that man, says the voice of God. Jesus immediately lays his hands on the man, the power of the Spirit flowing through him, and the man is miraculously raised up. Here is what is vital for you to remember and when you comprehend this it will lift the veil from your eyes regarding the role of the Holy Ghost, on earth Jesus was nothing less than a total man. He did not have revelation knowledge without the voice of the Spirit. And he could not move unless the Holy Spirit moved him. Have you ever wondered why, when Jesus passed by, some did not get healed? Why didn't he pray for them? Why didn't he reach out and touch them? It is because the Father did not ask the Holy Ghost to request that Jesus do it. Christ said, that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do, John 14:31. Jesus was dependent on the Spirit? He was Christ's lifeline to the Father. Was Christ capable of sinning? Even before Christ faced Golgotha, he offered himself to the Father through the Holy Ghost. Comparing the blood of Christ to the sacrifice of animals, Hebrews says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Heb. 9.14. Had he not offered himself through the Holy Ghost, he would not be accepted in the eyes of God the Father. Nor would he have endured the sufferings of the cross. Had he not presented himself through the Holy Ghost, his blood would not have remained pure and spotless. And let me add this, had the Holy Spirit not been with Jesus, he may have likely sinned. That's right. It was the Holy Spirit who was the power that kept him pure. He was not only sent from heaven, but he was called the Son of Man and as such he was capable of sinning. The fact that he did not does not mean that he could not. If you believe that Jesus was not able to sin, then why would Satan waste his time tempting him? The devil knew what he was doing. Without the Holy Ghost Jesus may have never made it. Jesus actually offered himself through the Holy Ghost to remain sinless. He even depended on the Spirit to raise him from the death grip of the grave. Remember what Paul said? Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Rome. 1, 4. It was through the power of the Spirit that Christ was raised from the dead. Here is what scripture says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, Rome. 8-11. Not only did the spirit raise Christ, he is the one who will also raise you. We can rest our hope in him. God's master plan even after he changed the course of history by walking out of the empty tomb, Christ continued to depend on the spirit. In fact, he told the disciples not to leave Jerusalem until they had been imbued from on high. 
he said they should wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts 1, 4-5. Christ was under God's control as he spoke those words. He was repeating what the Father said to the Holy Ghost. So dependent was Christ on the Spirit that he turned to him before giving directions to his followers. Scripture says he was taken to heaven after he gave instructions through the Holy Spirit to the Apostles. Acts 1, 2. Don't read me wrong. I am in no way saying that Christ was in a lesser position than the Spirit. Not at all. Jesus is not lower than the Holy Ghost, nor is the Holy Ghost lower than Jesus. There is absolute equality in the Trinity. Each member has unique purposes and characteristics. What I want you to know is that the Spirit is not weak. He is not immature or incapable of speaking for himself. The Holy Ghost is perfect, powerful, and glorious. The Spirit deserves our worship. We should put into practice what we have been singing about for generations, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. How do you recognize him? It's as simple as that little voice you hear when you are about to fall asleep, the voice that reminds you, you haven't prayed today. Or he may say, you haven't read the word today. That's the Spirit speaking, tugging at your soul. You know him already, but he yearns for you to know him more. The Lord predicted what would happen to you when you made a place for the Spirit. He said, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, John 7:38. And what was that anointing he was talking about? But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, v. 39. God has a detailed master plan for your life. His anointing and his spirit are included in the blueprint, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a deposit, 2 Cor. 121-22. Have you made room for the Holy Spirit? All he asks is a place in your heart. Only a breath away, why doesn't God answer my prayer? Why can't I receive my deliverance and my healing? The answer to your most urgent need is close much closer than you ever imagined. Just a word, spoken from your heart, can cause life's darkest clouds suddenly to disappear. It's time to stop thinking that God is an unapproachable spirit residing millions of miles away. The Father is so near that you can talk to Him at any moment, and His Spirit is so close that He can give you comfort, peace, and direction. All you have to do is ask and trust that He will act. What I have found in the Spirit is not some mystery shrouded secret. It is as real as life itself and as close as your very heartbeat. And that's why I want to share it with you. Weakness or will. Let's begin with this fact about the Godhead, what is true of one does not necessarily apply to all three. They are sometimes different, even in the way they move and in the way they talk. We've already discussed the fact that members of the Godhead are distinct persons yet they are one. But when it comes to our personal relationship and communication with God, an understanding of Father, Son, and Spirit is essential. Anytime you see God working, you see Him as one God. But you begin to see some distinction in the way they think and in the way they act. For example, when the Jewish people under the Old Covenant willfully and knowingly sinned in the presence of the Father, do you recall what happened? Scripture records that they were either slain or punished. 
but Christ the Son dealt differently with those who knowingly and willfully sinned. Example, consider the Pharisees. Did Christ kill them? No. He rebuked them. You say, Benny, I always believed that Christ forgave everyone. Scripture doesn't record whether Jesus forgave the Pharisees for their sin. Yet he did forgive the criminal on the cross when he cried from his heart, I'm a sinner. Don't misunderstand. God the Father did forgive, but he also killed or punished those who refused to stop rebelling against him. God the Son, however, responded in another manner. Instead of slaying or judging the willful sinner, he simply rebuked him. You ask, but what about the Holy Ghost? What is his response to a person who knowingly, deliberately sins? He reacts differently from even the Father and the Son. The Spirit does not remove them or rebuke them he convicts them and withdraws the power of his presence. Where should I look? The Trinity, as we see, is composed of three distinct and unique persons. But you need to understand their oneness their unity. It is essential that you recognize that the all-embracing oneness we are talking about is connected to the work and essence of the Godhead. The Word makes it clear that there are differences or diversities of administration in the Godhead, yet they are one. Here is how Paul explained it to the church at Corinth, there are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all, I call. 12, 5-6. And when he writes, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, v. 7. Paul was unfolding the working of the Godhead. He explained that the Lord Jesus is the administrator, the Father is the operator, and the Holy Ghost is the manifester. Now that is one of the few times in the Word where Jesus is mentioned first and the Father second in the order of recognition. But let's put them back in the usual order of Scripture. What is the primary work of the Father? He operates. And what about the Son? He administrates the operation of the Father. And the Holy Ghost manifests the administration of that operation. If you need life, to whom do you turn? You look to the Father because he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. You say, Benny, I thought we looked to Jesus. No. The source is the Father. But the giver of that source is Christ. And the power of the source is the Holy Spirit. So when you need life, here is what happens. You look up to God the Father and say, Father, give me life. Or healing. Or deliverance. You see, God is the source of it. Jesus said, Ask the Father in my name. Even though you are approaching God through his Son, it is still the Father you are asking for the gift. And your request goes through the Son to the Father. How is that gift returned? Let's say your request is for healing. God the Father remember now that God is three persons looks at God the Son and says, Would you please heal him? Christ delivers the healing. Why? Because that is the role of the administrator. The very word administrate means to minister or to serve. So the Father releases the healing to the Son, and the Son serves it to you. Can you picture yourself reaching out to receive your healing and finding that somehow it seems just out of your reach? You stretch your arms as far as you can, but the gift seems beyond your grasp. So close and yet so far away. What has happened? What's missing? That's where the work of the Holy Spirit enters the picture. He presents himself to manifest the healing that was provided by God and served by his Son. It is the Spirit who completes the process of your healing. He's by your side it began at Pentecost. The Holy Ghost descended from heaven to make manifest the word of the Godhead. 
And exactly where is the spirit today? Where does he make his residence? The spirit does not stand beside Jesus as many well-intentioned people believe. And he does not stand alongside the Father. He was given to you and to me as the comforter or the one by our side. The Holy Spirit is your helper. Yes, he is your assistant to help you receive the life, the healing, or the deliverance you so desperately need. Often someone asks, Benny, who should I pray to? My answer is, please don't confuse the issue. You pray to the Father. Well, then, the seeker says, you told us we are to talk to the Spirit. I have to tell them, there is an enormous difference between talking and praying. I've never yet prayed to the Holy Ghost. Do you know what the meaning of the word prayer is? Prayer means petition. In other words you come with your need asking for an answer. You come looking and expect to receive. You never look to the Spirit he's the one who helps you look. To this day I have never said, Holy Spirit, give me. But I can't count the times I've said, Precious Holy Spirit, help me ask. Are you beginning to realize that your answer is only a breath away? Just a word, waiting to be spoken. It may be a physical problem that has tormented you for years. Or it may be a habit that seems impossible to break. The answer you need is near at hand. Isn't it time you turn to the Spirit of God and say, Holy Spirit, you are my helper. I need you. Will you help me now? The very second you utter those words from your heart, the Holy Ghost will place his hand on you and something marvelous will happen. Suddenly you will find yourself literally in the Spirit absorbed in his presence and his person. Three little words when the Father gives you something, it comes of the Father. And when the Son gives you something, it is usually described as coming through Jesus. But when the Holy Ghost provides, it is given in him. Av, through, in just three little words, but they are mighty and powerful. As you read God's word, the pattern is striking. When we see the Father spoken of, it is in terms of the love of God, the power of God, the grace of God. That's how God is presented again and again. But how is Christ portrayed? Often in scripture we are taught that we give praise through the Son, receive through the Son, and so on. When it comes to the Holy Ghost, however, the terminology changes. The word in is used. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, Galans 5.16. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit, v. 25. As Christ said to the Samaritan woman at the well, the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him, John 4.23. Here, the word in simply means at one with. In other words, Christ said that the Father seeks those that worship and are at one with the Spirit. Are you walking at one with the Spirit? Are you living at one with the Spirit? Reaching that relationship is not difficult. It is as simple as saying to the great helper, help me. That's when the Spirit of God will touch you and actually assist you as you reach out to receive what God wants you to have. What is important in all of this is that you realize that the Trinity is actually working together to accomplish one goal to meet your need. They are Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but they are one. They are a team of persons, united in one nature, working together, in complete accord and eternal harmony. It is because the Holy Ghost is here on earth and by your side that you keep the healing or deliverance you have received. That is why Jesus could return to heaven, and yet you can retain on earth the gift he has given. If you want to know how to maintain a close relationship with the Holy Spirit, 
Listen to the word of the great prophet Haggai, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear, Hag. 2, 5. When you ask the Son of God to come into your heart, you are making a personal covenant with God. And it's not a one-way conversation. God also makes an agreement or a covenant with you. That's the way he has always worked. The Father initiated covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, David, and many others. But just as God has sought to enter into agreements, so has humanity reached out to God. That is what we discover with Jacob, Joshua, Elijah, and the Israelites. As the Israelites confessed their sins to God, they said, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy. We are in great distress. Nay. 9.32-37 Then Nehemiah told the Lord, And because of all this, we make a sure covenant, and write it. And our leaders and our Levites and our priests seal it. V. 38 It was signed by no fewer than 84 leaders who swore to have entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord. 1029. Covenants with God were ratified by a variety of acts including standing Zra 1014, loosing the shoe Ruth 4, 7-11, giving a feast General 26, 30, erecting a monument General 31, 45-53, and taking an oath Joshua 2-12-14. Perhaps the most important covenant of all is the one God made to you through his son when he brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Heb. 13.20. A word of warning. But just as God has a covenant regarding your salvation, you can make a vow or oath with God that deals with your personal needs. I've made a number of commitments to God, and I believe that God recognizes the sincerity of a commitment when you state categorically what you're willing to do in response to his blessing. One fact is obvious. The Old Testament is filled with covenants that pleased God. And why is that important to you? Because God works by and through covenants, and you can enter into a covenant with him regarding any special need. You will find that the Father is more than willing to stand by his word. I have come to believe that the Holy Spirit enters your life as the result of the eternal covenant God made with you regarding your salvation. He is God's messenger and Christ's to you from that moment on. And that agreement is to be taken seriously. Remember what happened to Samson. After Delilah had his head shaved while he was sleeping, she shouted, single quote the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep, and said, I will go out as before, at other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him, Jud. 16.20. What had departed was the same spirit of the Lord that came mightily upon him earlier, Jud. 15.14. Can you imagine being in that spot? You think you're filled, but you're not. You believe you're anointed, but the spirit is gone. Samson was totally unaware that he had betrayed his calling and his covenant with God. He believed he still had strength, but the spirit had vanished from his life. The same thing happened to Saul. The Lord rejected Saul as king because he has turned back from following me, and has not performed my commandments. 1 Sam. 15:11. Not only did the Spirit leave the king, but something far worse happened, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, 
and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him, 1 Sam. 16:14. The vacuum will be filled. Do you know that every unbeliever is greatly influenced by demons? It sounds shocking, but that's what scripture says, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, if, 2, 1-2. You say, but that could never happen to me. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. That may be true, but if for any reason the presence of the Holy Spirit leaves you, a vacuum is created and that is exactly what Satan is looking for. Then his influence turns to oppression. Nobody likes to talk about demons. Preachers don't preach about them. Christians don't discuss them. And sinners erase the dreadful topic from their minds. It's like a politician avoiding the subjects of drugs and crime, thinking that somehow they will just go away. But Christ addressed the issue without fear. He talked about how demons are eager to invade your life. Jesus said to the Pharisees, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and well there, Matt. 1243-45. Listen closely to what the Lord says next, and the last state of the man is worse than the first, v. 45. Satan's plan of attack is this, every demon that is left will pay a return visit to see if the opportunity is still available. And if he is given a chance he will bring others with him. It's a frightening situation, but one that you can avoid by staying completely, totally filled with the Holy Spirit and never breaking your covenant with God. Do you remember the story of the disciples who failed in their attempt to heal a small child? It was while Christ was on the Mount of Transfiguration being glorified. And when the Master came down from the mountain, the father of the boy said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him, Matt. 1715-16 but more than a physical healing was needed. Christ said, Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and he came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour, vv. 17-18. The Lord not only wants to remove Satan and his demons from your life those things that are a barrier to your healing and deliverance but he wants to fill that empty void. That's why he sent the Comforter. He wants you to be filled with the Spirit. Right now, the Spirit is on earth. In fact he is waiting patiently for your invitation. All it takes is just a word, even a whisper. Holy Spirit, please help me. Your answer is only a breath away. Why are you weeping? Benny, can blasphemy against the Father be forgiven? A new Christian asked recently. Yes, I answered. What about blasphemy against the Son? That can be forgiven too, I said. Then can you tell me why blasphemy against the Holy Ghost can't be forgiven? For many people the topic is troublesome. But the Spirit has given me freedom from the fear of committing the unpardonable sin. He unlocked my understanding with such a revelation that I no longer worry over the subject. He was quietly weeping. In the winter of 1974 God opened my eyes to a tremendous truth regarding the nature of the Holy Spirit and why the Father and the Son gave the ultimate warning to those who would blaspheme the Spirit. I was in prayer when suddenly I knew that the Spirit of God was in my room 
and I felt he was weeping. I know it sounds strange, and I must confess I don't fully understand it. But I do remember that I was on my knees when I felt his presence and sensed that he was quietly weeping. You say, well, how did you know it was the Spirit? For me to question the reality of that moment would be to question my salvation. That's how real that experience was. I can't explain it or comprehend it, but I know it happened. The experience was so real that I literally turned my face to the left and said, Spirit of the Lord, why are you weeping? There was no answer. And at that moment the tears began flowing down my own cheeks. Through my watering eyes I asked him again, Spirit of the Lord, why are you weeping? Then suddenly my entire being began to cry out. It was no longer just tears. The reality of what I felt was so great I began to groan. The feeling came from deep inside. It was as if I were heartbroken like a person who has just lost a son or a daughter. The deep sobbing would not stop. I was weeping at night and could not sleep. And it continued, not for hours but for days. It wasn't planned, and, truthfully, I couldn't understand why the tears were so uncontrollable. In all, the experience lasted for more than three weeks. The burden became heavier and heavier. I felt as if someone had taken a thousand-pound load, strapped it on my back, pulled tight its belts, locked it with a key, and left me alone to struggle. If anything, it felt as if I was overburdened with an oppressive, heavy load of grief. That's the only way to describe it a weight of grief. Pacing the floor I felt like the psalmist when he wrote, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. P.S. 6, 6, there I was, grieving and not knowing why, pacing the floor and searching for a reason. I looked up and said, Lord, why? I prayed to be released from this unexplainable weight on my shoulders. At that moment God Almighty transformed that heaviness of grief into a burden for lost souls that I had never known before. What began with my turning to ask the Holy Spirit, why are you weeping? ended with a life-changing burden for the lost that has never left me not once to this day. I came away from that experience even though I still do not understand it fully convinced that the Holy Spirit grieves for the world. I am fully persuaded that with tears he searches for servants to spread God's love. I believe that the Spirit of the Father's heart is breaking with the needs of mankind. Perhaps for those weeks he allowed me just a glimpse of his agony for the lost. There was no question of what was to be the future of Benny Hinn. I knew that I must preach the message of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I have not stopped doing it since. The Spirit is so special that when he finds a person that he can use, he allows them to feel his heartbeat. When you have felt the pain that the Holy Ghost feels, it clings to your consciousness and will never leave you. You not only see the needs of mankind, you feel those desperate needs as never before. But I believe there was another reason that God allowed me to endure that lesson. It opened my eyes to why the Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity and yet is different from the Father and the Son. And it made it possible for me to fit together the pieces of the puzzle called the unpardonable sin. Insult and slander exactly what does scripture say? Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men, Matt. 1230-31. Then, making it even clearer, he said, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, 
it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. V. 32. What does the word blasphemy encompass? The word has several meanings, including to speak evil, to rail or scoff, to revile or to abuse, reproach or speak profanity of, to defame, to speak with injury, to slander or to accuse falsely, to insult. Some may ask, how do you defame the Holy Ghost? Or how do you insult him? It is a willful act. The book of Hebrews speaks directly to the issue, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' Lord eyes without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. Heb. 1026-29. The words are followed by this stern reminder, for we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, single quote the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, vv. 30-31. What a difference why is there no forgiveness for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Throughout the pages of this book I have shared with you from scripture that there is a uniqueness a difference in the Holy Ghost. He is not higher nor lower than the Father or the Son, but we must come to know his characteristics. God Almighty, the Father, is the great God of heaven and must be worshipped, praised, glorified, magnified, and uplifted. Jesus, his Son, is the Lord of glory whom even the angels fear to look upon. I feel also that the Holy Spirit has the capacity to feel human emotions even pain, grief, and anguish with an intensity that is known uniquely to him. You say, do you mean that the Holy Ghost can feel heartache in a different way than the Father, and the Son? Scripture does not say, grieve not the Father or the Son. It is always, grieve not the Spirit. Why? I believe it is because he is touched in a deep, profound way that somehow varies from what the other members of the Godhead experience. The very fact that Jesus said that a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven but a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven indicates that the Holy Ghost can become wounded. Why is it that the Father would say, you have vexed my spirit? In other words, God's spirit was afflicted or tormented. And scripture records that he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them, is a 63. 10. Why is it that the Holy Ghost seems to be so protected? Perhaps it is because God the Father knows how tender the Spirit is. It is almost as though God the Father were saying, if you touch him, I'll never forgive you. Why is the Holy Ghost so shielded by Christ that Jesus would say, my blood will wash every sin but that? He even said, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, Mark 3:29. Why? Again it is because the Holy Spirit is different and his heart can so easily be touched with pain. But may I give you a word of comfort? Before Jesus ever talked about blasphemy, he made a very important statement you should read once again. He said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad, Matt. 12.30. If you are working for Christ, you do not fall into the category of his warning. When the Lord spoke on the topic of blasphemy, 
He made it absolutely clear that he was admonishing people who were not working with him. Ask yourself, am I with him? If the answer is yes, then ask, do I gather souls for him? If the answer is still yes, you can say, then I will never blaspheme the spirit. Are you worried? A teenage girl once came to me convinced she had blasphemed the Holy Ghost. Are you worried? I asked her. Yes, she said with a troubled look. Young lady, I said, the very fact that you are worried means that you did not blaspheme the spirit. You see, blasphemy is an act of the will that does not carry worry with it. Blasphemy is cursing Jesus and saying, I don't care what he did. It is saying, who cares how precious the blood is. Blasphemy is insulting what God did and doing it willfully. You say, well, Benny, how do I know I'll never commit that sin? You will not commit that sin as long as you never want to commit it. Look closely at what Christ said. He said anyone who speaks against the Spirit will not be forgiven. That word is vital to Christ's message. To speak indicates a deliberate act. It's more than an idle thought. Your entire body becomes involved in the act of uttering a word. If the Spirit is blasphemed, he is reviled by those who have made a decision to blaspheme. It's an act of volition, a choice you must exercise. Where is Satan in all of this? From dealing with people as a minister, I know how the devil comes to people and tries to fill their minds with evil thoughts about the Holy Ghost. Would you expect any less of him? Perhaps it has happened to you. Have you ever had some unbecoming thought enter your mind that you wish had never come? Who launched that evil thought in your direction? Of course it was Satan. But did you speak that thought out loud? No. The reason you kept silent was that it was not your thought. It is the person who speaks against the Holy Ghost who has made a decision to blaspheme. It is the one who says, I'm going to blaspheme, and I don't care what God thinks. Saul blasphemed the Holy Ghost when he rejected the word of God. Demas, one of Paul's companions, blasphemed when he turned his back on the gospel and returned to the lusts of the flesh. Paul wrote, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, to Tim. 4.10. Don't let him leave you say, you have been telling us that we can't blaspheme. What about Saul and Demas? The point I am making is that you can't blaspheme as long as you decide to live for Jesus and stick with it. The road to eternity is littered with people who start out with Christ and end up with Satan. They are those who walk an aisle and shake a preacher's hand as some kind of an insurance policy on a mansion in heaven. But their hearts did not follow their actions. Soon you find those same people falling in love with lust or money or the glitter of the world. And they say, God, I'm leaving. You may wonder, how do I know that the Holy Spirit is still with me? And how will I know when and if he has departed? It is a device of Satan to attack you and fill your mind with the words, the Holy Spirit has left you. He's gone forever. You'll never have him back. But don't accept that. Here's how you can know that the Spirit is still with you. This has been a great help to me and I believe it will be to you. First, the scriptures tell us the Holy Spirit abides with every believer as counselor and source of peace. Second, are you aware of the presence of Jesus in your life? then the Holy Ghost has not left. Do you still hear the Spirit of God say, pray? He hasn't left. Do you sometimes feel guilty about not reading the Word? He has not departed. In fact, he's convicting you. Have you met someone and felt the urge to tell the person about Jesus? He's still there. 
Jesus was not speaking a contradiction when he said the Spirit will be with you forever. He was speaking of the fact that the Spirit's role is permanent even eternal. You see, if you blaspheme him, the Spirit will depart. But if you grieve him, he doesn't leave you. He'll stay, even when you wound him. I believe Christians grieve the Spirit every day. I, for one, am guilty. Grieving the Holy Ghost is the sin of the church. That's why Paul said to the church, do not grieve the Spirit. He was not addressing those words to unbelievers. What if I should fail? You may ask, how do we grieve him? You grieve him when you don't forgive. You grieve him when you say something ugly or wrong. But your daily prayer should be, blessed Spirit of God, please help me today not to grieve you. And what if you should fail? He is more than willing to hear you say, please forgive me. And he will forgive and cleanse you seventy times seven. The Holy Spirit is so gentle that even the slightest wound will cause him pain. And the longer you've known him, the more you will understand his feelings. So many times, in tears, I say, Holy Spirit, I'm sorry for the anguish I've caused you. But please, please, stay by my side. There are times I've told him, you can chastise me, but don't let me go. For whom the Lord chastises he loves. It's like saying, I love you. I believe that if a person remains in a state of unforgiveness the Spirit of the Lord will allow tormentors to enter him. That's what Christ told Peter when the disciple asked, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Matt. 1821. The Lord answered, I do not say to you, up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. V. 22. Then he gave the parable of the unforgiving servant, which ends with the warning, Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, and delivered him to the torturers, until he should pay all that was due to him, vv. 33-34. Christ concluded the parable by saying, So my heavenly Father will do to you if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother, v. 35. Does this mean that the Holy Ghost has made a permanent retreat? No. It's just that God will remove his hand of protection from those who won't forgive. A person who has totally blasphemed the Holy Spirit becomes filled with the demons of Satan. But if you ask, Benny, do you believe that a demon can possess a Christian who is filled with the Holy Ghost? Absolutely not. I do believe, however, that a person who has made a confession of faith in Christ, but is not living for the Lord who is living in unforgiveness can be influenced by demons. They can be harassed and even oppressed by the powers of darkness, but not possessed. Peter, for example, said, Lord, you're not going to die. And Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. Peter was not possessed by Satan. He was influenced. There is a big difference. Jesus said, Through the Spirit, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that, my friend, is good news. And since he is staying, it is more important to know what he will do for us than what Satan will do against us. You can't do it alone I am certain that it is your utmost desire to love God with your spirit, soul, and body. But no matter how strong your desire, it is absolutely impossible to accomplish your goal all alone. It is imperative that you say, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to assist me. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, Rome. 5, 5.
Certainly we want to love Christ, but it is impossible unless the Spirit gives us supernatural love. And how do you receive it? You simply say, Spirit of God, I surrender to you. By that very act he will flood your soul with a love for the Lord. The more deeply you know the Holy Spirit, the more deeply you will know Jesus. It's automatic. Why? Because when the Spirit is present, Christ is promoted. Jesus said, He shall glorify me. The Lord is never pushed aside, but rather he is pulled much closer. Paul wrote, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, Rome. 8, 1. Do you understand what it truly means to walk after the Spirit? When he says, Pray, that's what you'll do. When he says, Testify, that's what you'll do. Suddenly, you're walking after the Spirit. To disobey is to feel condemnation and then guilt. But if you heed his call, you know the joy of freedom in the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, v. 2. The lawgiver in the old covenant was the Father, but the lawgiver in the new covenant is the Holy Ghost. Jesus gave the commandments through the Spirit, Acts 1, 2, just as God once gave the law through Moses. 7 Revelations What a joy to dwell on the victories described by Paul in Romans 8. In fact Paul shares 7 specific revelations in the first 16 verses of his letter. Perhaps nowhere in scripture is the work of the Spirit so clearly defined. 1. There is power over sin. The first revelation says that the law of the Spirit of life gives you freedom from sin and death vv. 1-2. You'll have dominion over sin. 2. He will fulfill the law. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit vv. 3-4. It is the fulfillment of the law of Moses that has produced the freedom we now have in the spirit. 3. He will give you the mind of God. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, vv. 5-8. 4. He will give you righteousness. But you are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness, vv. 9-10. 5. He will give life to your body. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, v. 11. If you follow in the footsteps of the Holy Ghost, you will walk in health. You will have a quickened body. As the prophet Isaiah said, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, 40, 31. My friend, you cannot renew your strength without the Holy Ghost because he is the one who quickens the mortal body. 6. He will bring death to self. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, 
These are sons of God, vv. 12-14. 7. He will testify of your salvation. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, vv. 15-16. In verse after verse Paul tells you that it is the Spirit that does the work of the Father and the Son. And I get excited every time I read those glorious words, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. God does not intend for you to stray from the path he has set for you to follow. He did not create you to see you fail. That's why you should not become unduly alarmed by the possibility of committing the unpardonable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Your love for Christ so outweighs Satan's influence that the battle has already been won. The Holy Spirit is longing for you to begin a deep, personal relationship. When my soul cried out with a heartfelt sobbing that seemed unending, the Spirit was patiently waiting. His burden became my burden, and the experience gave me a passion for souls that has never diminished nor departed. He was waiting to give me power, fulfillment, righteousness, a spirit-led life, and so much more. And now he is waiting for you. Heaven on Earth Why First Sermons in 1974 and early 1975 did not have much content. They were basically my testimony of the work of the Spirit of how he made himself so real to me. In those days I really didn't know too much, and there was so much to learn. But during 1975 I heard the unmistakable voice of the Holy Spirit telling me that it was time to begin conducting weekly meetings in Toronto. He said, follow me. Hear my voice, and you will lead many to Christ. And so I began. On Monday nights we scheduled a series of services that would continue for the next five years. We started in the high school auditorium, and the crowds became so large we had to move to larger facilities. Hundreds and hundreds of people attended. The services were totally led by the Spirit, and I listened ever so closely to His voice. People were delivered from serious addictions. Families were reunited. We had healing lines and heard testimonies of miracles. But always, always, the services resulted in the salvation of lost souls. Then something happened. People began to receive miracles, deliverance, and healings right in their seats. No lines for the laying on of hands. God began to do his work all across the auditorium so freely that there was not time to hear all of the testimonies. The press began to take notice. On the front pages of the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and other papers across Canada there were stories of the miracle rallies we were conducting. In December 1976 the Globe and Mail sent a reporter to one of the services to describe in detail what was happening. He wrote of the healings and testimonies and ended the article by quoting me, I'm not interested in building up Benny Hinn. I'm not and never will be. Jesus is the one. To be built up and exalted. We want to reach souls for the Lord Jesus. I want to see souls, 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 souls. People, do you understand that? Under the headline, Does Faith Healing Really Work? The Toronto Star presented four case studies of people who had been healed in our services. He told about a shift worker at the GM plant in Oshawa who had cancer of the throat. This week, following a checkup at the cancer clinic, he was told there is no trace of malignancy. He told the story of a Beaverton trucker, an M. churchgoer, 
who had suffered from congestive heart failure and slight emphysema, a lung disease, for seven years, was persuaded by friends to attend a healing crusade. I went to the doctor three days later, and he told me he could find nothing wrong, he says. God must have done it. What about their doctors? The reporter quoted one as saying, look, there are more things happening in this world than we know about. Television stations began to film documentaries on what God was doing. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, Global TV, and the huge independent station in Toronto, Channel 9, produced specials. We ran our own weekly television program that was shown in prime time after 60 minutes for a year and a half. A yellow cab in Pittsburgh leaving the great city of Toronto in 1979 was not easy for me. It was where I had been saved, healed, and touched by the mighty Spirit of God. The press had nothing but good news to report about the ministry. But again, I promised to follow the leading of the Holy Ghost. I knew he wanted me to build a church and establish an international ministry. He had told me this years earlier, in 1977. I remember exactly where it happened. I was back in Pittsburgh, riding in a big yellow cab when I had a conversation with the Spirit about it. About the ministry he said, it will touch the world. I wondered, where will it be? New York? Los Angeles? But, you know, the Spirit has an amazing way of leading you. In July 1978 I traveled to Orlando, Florida, to speak for Pastor Roy he told me about his daughter, Suzanne, who was attending Evangel College in Springfield, Missouri. Being single, my ears perked up. I invited myself back to spend Christmas with them, and Suzanne was home for the holidays. The first time I saw her, the Lord said, that's your wife. Just like that. I felt it. And she did too. But I had to be sure so I began to ask God for signs. I'd put out fleeces and every one of them was answered. I thought, is this just coincidence? Or does God really want me to marry this young lady? Then I tried one last sign a rather difficult one. I was flying back to Orlando from San Jose, California, on January 1, 1979. I made a quick trip there to speak at a New Year's Eve service. On the plane I had a talk with God. I said, if she really is to be my wife, have her say to me when I get back. I've made you a cheesecake. That was the toughest test I could think of. Suzanne met me at the Orlando airport, and the first words out of her mouth were, Benny, I've made you a cheesecake. Then she said, don't expect too much. I've never made a cheesecake before. We were engaged within two weeks and married later that year. As time passed, all signs pointed to Orlando, Florida, as the place we would begin a worldwide ministry. With just a handful of people, the Orlando Christian Center was started in 1983. Now it touches the lives of thousands of people every week, plus a national television audience. He's not a promoter to be honest, I had no idea where the spirit would lead my life when I began my relationship with him. All I knew was that he was real and desired my fellowship. He wanted to be my teacher and guide. But here is what I have come to know. The Holy Ghost will never promote himself. He'll promote Jesus. He will never create the place of greatness just for himself. He'll give the honor to the Lord. I've also learned that the Spirit is not the source of God's gifts. He is the one who helps you receive from the Giver, who is God the Father. He's also the one who helps you receive God the Son as Savior and Lord. Even an unbeliever senses the power of the Holy Ghost.
I've talked to hundreds of people about their conversion experiences, and so many have told me, something was happening that I couldn't explain. I felt uncomfortable about things I was doing. That's the convicting power of the Spirit. The Lord said, My Spirit shall not strive with man forever, General 6, 3. There is a wrestling going on as the Holy Ghost tries to let you know that you need the Lord. That's why people are so uncomfortable in the presence of God before they are saved. The Spirit is actually a witness for Jesus. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, John 15:26. The Spirit's vital purpose is to lead people to Christ. The Spirit convicts and convinces. I've met people who have left a gospel meeting and felt literally hounded by the Holy Spirit. They felt miserable in their sin. They felt a continual tugging at their hearts. The Spirit wouldn't let them go until they had made their peace with God through His Son. He will enter your mind and present the truth of Scripture, convincing you of the validity of the Gospel. And after you have given your heart to Christ, He is still right there, helping you witness for the Lord. The prophet Micah wrote, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Mick. 3, 8. He gives you the power to speak. In fact, it's useless to attempt to proclaim God's word without the Holy Ghost upon you. Help me. When you say, Holy Spirit, help me to know Jesus, he will not disappoint you. He is always willing to help. Listen to what the psalmist says, do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me, B.S. 51, 11. Then, in the very next breath, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Slash and uphold me with your generous spirit, V. 12. The Holy Ghost is willing. Anytime you say, Help me, he says, I will. When you say, Teach me, he says, I'm ready. And when you say, Help me to pray, he says, Let's begin. He is right there, giving you the desire to pray. He is the urging behind the hunger to talk to the Father and to the Son. Paul wrote these powerful words, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, 1 Cor. 12, 3. When you sing, He is Lord, and mean it from your heart, it's proof that the Holy Ghost is within you. He's using you to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the whole world. The moment you confess the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ you have passed the test of the Spirit. Scripture says, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not from God, 1 John 4, 2-3. He says, by this we know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error, v. 6. Your salvation is at the very heart of the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it is he that actually adopts you into God's family. Paul writes, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, Rome. 8.14-15. And here is how you express it. By him we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together, vv. 15-17.
Up for adoption the spirit looked at you and saw an orphan. He said, I will adopt you. He's your father. Why? Because he is the spirit of the father. Do you remember Dottie Rambo's song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. She was inspired to write, Omnipotent Father of mercy and grace. That's what the spirit is. Without him it is impossible to approach the father. Paul tells you, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the father, if 2.18. Through whom? Through Jesus, both Jew and Gentile can approach God by the Holy Ghost. But here's the most exciting part of all. The Bible says that the Holy Ghost has been given to you as a guarantee of eternal life. Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory, if 113-14. There's no doubt about it. The Holy Spirit is preparing you for heaven. If you're convinced he's living inside, then you must never question whether you are born again. You must never question whether your home is heaven. And you must never question whether you will have eternal life. Let me put it this way. If tomorrow morning you walk into a store and pick out some clothes and a pair of shoes but don't have all the money, you walk over to layaway and make a down payment toward the purchase. You say, I'll pick it up next week. Your name is on the bill, and you take the receipt home. Then next week you pick up the purchased possession. That's exactly what Jesus did when he came and gave you the Holy Ghost. The only difference is that he paid the entire price on Calvary. But here's what he says, I paid for your life, but I'm also giving a down payment that guarantees it's mine. He sent the Holy Spirit. And if you have him, you are on your way to glory. When Christ returns, he's going to pick you up and take you home. It's worth shouting about. You are a purchased possession of the Lord. That's why you can tell Satan to his ugly face, don't touch me. I'm a possession of Christ. And don't be afraid to speak the word. Kick him out, and he will flee from you. You have the Holy Spirit. A deposit on your inheritance. Why was he given as a down payment? Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Galans 3.13. And then he wrote this marvelous truth, He redeemed us in order that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, v. 14. Because Christ became a curse, the Spirit was given as promised. You need some help from the moment you accept Jesus as Savior, it is the Spirit that gives you the will, the strength, and the desire to obey God and live the Christian life. Without Him it is impossible. The Apostle Peter tells you, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, 1 Peter 1:22. The reason people even Christians fail is that they depend on their own strength. You can't obey God by saying, I'm going to do it by myself. How many times have you said, I'm going to pray, but you didn't? Or, I'll read the word, but you forgot. Why? Because you were depending on your mind. You depended on the flesh, and it will fail you continually. He'll give you strength and life, but the Spirit will give you something else just as important. He'll give you rest. Isaiah said, as a beast goes down into the valley, and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people, to make yourself a glorious name. Isa. 63, 14 Just after I began to preach the gospel, 
I met David Dupulisa. He was known as Mr. Pentecost as a result of his presentations of the Holy Spirit to world religious leaders. He was a charismatic before anyone knew what the word meant. I was walking down the same hallway with this anointed man at a conference in Brockville, Ontario, when I summoned the courage to stop him and ask a question. I nervously asked him, Dr. Dupulisi, how can I truly please God? The old man, who is now with Jesus, stopped, put his briefcase down, pointed his finger in my chest and pushed me against the wall. I certainly didn't expect that from a frail preacher. All I had said was, how can I please God? And he nailed me to the wall. Then he said two words that I have never forgotten. He said, don't try. He picked up his little case and walked on down the hall. I caught up with him and said, Dr. Dupulisi, I don't understand. He calmly turned around and said, young man, it's not your ability. It's his ability in you. Then he said, good night, and walked into his room. As I walked into my room, I was still puzzled. I lay down on my bed and thought about those words. It's not your ability. It's his ability in you. In that moment I hardly knew what to pray, but the Spirit began to unlock the truth of those words to me. How can I please God? By yielding. By not even trying. It was just as Mr. Pentecost said. The Holy Spirit will do the work. It's not my strength. It's His. Otherwise I would boast of my own accomplishments. God's touch when you see Jesus face to face, you won't say, Lord, look what I did. You'll say, Lord, look what you did with this wretched man. Start practicing it. Open your arms wide and say, Spirit of the living God, I want to live for Jesus today. I give you my mind, my emotion, my will, my intellect, my lips, my mouth, my ears, and my eyes use them for the glory of God. When I wake up and pray that kind of prayer, the anointing floods me like an ocean at high tide. In the moment I totally surrender, God begins to flow through my ministry. Nothing less will do. I have often wondered why, in my own meetings, the Spirit directs me so often to pray for our healing. And I have wondered why my ministry has been accompanied by people who fall under the power of the Holy Spirit. But when I look at the results of the meetings, I see that every manifestation of the Spirit is for one purpose, to bring people to Christ. It is a demonstration that God is alive, that He is still moving in the lives of people. I have seen thousands of people literally fall under the power of the Spirit, and I believe that just a small touch of God's power is all they felt. But it demonstrates the awesome strength of the Almighty, and it draws people to the Savior. Being healed or even being slain in the Spirit is not a prerequisite for heaven. There is only one door Christ the Lord. Never take your attention from the purpose of the Spirit on earth. He is the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son, leading people to confess that Christ is Lord. As I began my ministry I never ceased to be amazed at the power of the Holy Spirit. He's gentle, but he's powerful. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Is a 47 The Holy Ghost is not a weak personality. As both a young Christian and a new minister I often stood back and watched the Lord at work. I knew it wasn't me that was touching lives. It was the sovereignty of God and the operation of the Spirit. I just watched in amazement. But I don't think I've been as frightened in my life as that Sunday night in April 1975. 
There I was on the platform of a small Pentecostal church on the west side of Toronto when my parents Costandi and Clements walked in the door. My heart almost stopped, and I could feel the perspiration on my forehead. My worst nightmare could not have matched this. I was petrified too startled to laugh and too shocked to cry. What must they be thinking? I had been preaching for five months, but my parents had no idea. The tension in our house over the Lord was bad enough without my breaking that news. But they saw an ad the pastor placed in the newspaper and walked into that little church. I couldn't even glance in their direction. But the moment I opened my mouth to preach, the anointing of the Holy Spirit filled that building. It was so strong. Words began flowing out of me like a river. I found myself actually listening to what the Spirit directed me to say. As I was finishing my message, I felt led to begin ministering to people who needed healing. I thought, what must my mom and dad be thinking of all this? Then they stood up and walked out the back door. Jim, I said after the service, you've got to pray. Jim Pointer was with me on the platform that night and knew the seriousness of the situation. I even thought of spending the night at his home to avoid the inevitable confrontation. Instead, I got into my car and began to drive the streets of Toronto. I thought, if I get home in the middle of the night, my folks will be sleeping. It was just after two o'clock in the morning when I quietly parked in front of the house and turned off the ignition. I tiptoed up the steps and slowly unlocked the front door. I opened it and was startled by what I saw. There in front of me, seated on the couch, were my mom and dad. I had been panic-stricken when I saw them walk into that church, but this was even worse. My knees began to tremble, and I looked for a place to sit down. My father was the first to speak and I listened in disbelief. Son, he softly said, how can we become like you? Was I hearing what I thought I was hearing? Was this the same man that had been so offended by my conversion? The father that had absolutely forbidden the name of Jesus to be spoken in our home? We really want to know, he said. Tell us how we can have what you have. I looked at my dear mother and saw tears begin to fall down her beautiful cheeks. I couldn't contain my joy at that moment. I began to weep. And for the next hour of that unforgettable night I opened the scripture and led my parents to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. My daddy said, Benny, do you know what convinced me? He told me that when I began preaching, he turned to my mother and said, that's not your son. Your son can't talk. His God must be real. He didn't know that I had been totally healed of stuttering. The marvelous conversion of my parents allowed the Lord to literally sweep through the rest of the family. Henry showed up and got saved. My little brother Mike was born again. Then it happened to Chris. If you've ever heard about household salvation, this was it. The Hin home was transformed into heaven on earth. And the change was not temporary. It was a permanent work of the Spirit. Today Chris, Willie, Henry, Sammy, and Mike are totally involved in ministry. Mary and Rose are committed Christians and living for the Lord. And Benny. Well, you know what has happened to him. First things first just as the Holy Spirit touched my life and drew my parents to Christ, he wants the same for you. The greatest work of the Spirit is not to lead you into some heavenly ecstasy on earth. That may happen but his purpose is to convict of sin and lead people to Jesus. As you have been reading this book you may have said, that's for me. I want to have an exciting personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. But are you ready for it? 
What happened to me the night the spirit entered my bedroom was not the first step. It began much earlier. You've got to put first things first and touch every step on your spiritual ladder. My friend, if you have never asked Christ to come into your heart, now is the time. It's the most important step you will ever take. Right now, say, Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner. I believe that you are the Son of God and that you shed your precious blood on the cross for me. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse my heart from all unrighteousness. I thank you for saving me now. Amen. If you have spoken that prayer from your heart, you are ready to begin a new life in the Spirit. And every day as you pray, read God's Word, and tell others of His love, you will sense God's exciting direction. I have come to the conclusion that I am totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. He's all I have. He's all you have. Jesus promised him and God sent him that you may have knowledge, power, communion, and fellowship. He will anoint you, help you, breathe on you, comfort you, give you rest, lead and guide you, help you pray, and so much more. He is waiting to begin a relationship with you that will change your life forever. But it's up to you to extend the invitation. When the sun comes up tomorrow, he will be longing to hear you say, Good morning, Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that was essential for the earthly work of Christ is necessary for you. He is indispensable. Your experience of salvation is based on Christ, the cross, and your confession. But how did you receive the reality of your regeneration? How did you know your heart had been cleansed? That, my friend, is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of the Lord that places the message in your very soul. You can't find adequate words to describe or explain it, but you know it is as valid as life itself. If that reality is so strong, so deep, and so personal, then how real is the one who gives it? It's a significant question. How real must be the messenger if the message is so real? The Holy Spirit longs for a daily, ongoing personal relationship with you. He wants to make an entrance a mighty entrance into your life. Room for the Spirit or generations, people have been led to believe that the Spirit is an it. From a thousand voices, millions of written words, and an attitude that has permeated the Christian faith, we have been programmed to think of the Holy Ghost as a something rather than as a someone. If I heard a chorus recently that said, give me more of you. And I thought, why, that's unscriptural. You can't take a part of him. He's a person. You can't break him into little pieces, an arm this week and a leg the next. It's not, give me more of you. It's exactly the opposite. You should be crying out to the Spirit, please, take more of me. He doesn't surrender to you. No. You surrender to Him. Without a doubt, the most overlooked message of the Church today is that the Holy Spirit is real and we must make a place for Him. Sad, isn't it? Ministers of the Gospel by the thousands do not comprehend the workings of the Spirit on planet Earth. I'm afraid they've been programmed, too. From Sunday school to seminary, they have been led to believe that the Spirit is a minor member of the Godhead who came at Pentecost and has been floating in the clouds ever since. Many actually avoid speaking His name lest people confuse them with one of those off-the-wall charismatics. God intended that the Church be alive and vibrant. Just before he returned to heaven, Jesus uttered the unforgettable words, These signs will follow those who believe. Mark 16:17. Perhaps the most puzzling question I have as a minister is this. If the Holy Spirit was sent to give Christians power to live a victorious life, 
Why are so many despondent and defeated? When I was an evangelist, I went to a church, conducted a rally, prayed for the needs of the people, and returned to my home. I really did not know what was taking place in the daily lives of the people. But now that I am a pastor, my perspective has totally changed. And I am disturbed by what I see. I now realize that infinitely more people have major problems than I ever dreamed possible. That so many believers are disheartened, dejected, on the verge of spiritual bankruptcy is almost unthinkable. Repeatedly I see tiny problems creep into people's lives and then suddenly emerge as Goliaths, or Mount Everests. Father God, I ask, where is the victory? Where is the joy? Just last week our congregation experienced a mighty outpouring of the Spirit on Sunday night. As I ministered to the people, I sensed an unusual anointing. On the way home I was shouting, Hallelujah! I said to my wife, Suzanne, what a great service! Isn't it wonderful what God is doing here? But just as I walked in the door of our home, the phone rang. And for the next 30 minutes I heard the heartbreaking story of a man who had been in that very service. He cried and cried as he told me, I just don't know where to turn. It happens over and over again. Who's got the power? What's wrong? Why is it that the early church had such power and we have so little of it? With one word they commanded demons to depart, and we seem so fearful and alarmed. Just mention demons, and Christians do the hundred yard dash. Many pastors won't even talk about them, as if ignoring the topic would drive them out. It's difficult to understand. Instead of preaching to people that they can be free, many ministers keep a silence that leaves many in bondage. Rather than obey the words of Christ, they shall cast out devils, Mark 16:17. they tell their people that what is really going on doesn't exist that it's all in their minds. And the people murmur, Lord, I can't find an answer. I can't find help. Is it any wonder that some cultists have more power than some Christians? Should we be surprised when satanic followers demonstrate more of the supernatural than early followers of Christ? How is it possible? If God is omnipotent and Satan has such a tiny fraction of power, how can a disciple of the devil operate with any authority? It's really very simple. A person who uses 100% of just a tiny fraction has more power than someone who can tap into the energy of the universe but doesn't even try. I am deeply troubled when I think about a sinner receiving more from Satan than a believer who asks nothing from God can receive. It's time you begin to exercise the power of the Almighty. You need to know that God is greater than any demon and that only one word from Jesus destroys the devil. Just one of his angels can bind Satan in the pit. Rev. 21-3. God is not weak his people are. Here's the only conclusion I have been able to reach. The reason the church and so many people in it have become so defeated is that it has ignored the most powerful person in the universe the Holy Spirit. Again, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, Zech. 4, 6. And the next words are just as exciting, Who are you, O great mountain? You shall become a plain, v. 7. You need more than a caterpillar tractor to level the mammoth pile of rocks that stands before you. It's a giant mountain of futility and fear. And the excavation you need is only possible through the energizing power of the Holy Spirit. Real, not counterfeit God, throughout his word, gives a prescription for breaking the yoke of bondage. He knows exactly what it takes to lift your heavy burden. It is called the anointing, 
it shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. Isa. 10.27 As God removed Israel's burden, so also will he remove the yoke from you. After all, Satan is the treacherous one that has placed that heavy yoke upon you. But Jesus, who declared that the bondage would be destroyed, said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light, Matthew 11.30. The ever-tightening yoke can be broken by the Spirit. But not just for that moment. It's not a temporary solution. He stays with you, continuing to lift the burden and to guide you on a brand new path. The Apostle John, speaking of the Spirit, wrote, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him, 1 John 2:27. It doesn't take a Ph.D. to be able to discern who has an anointing and who doesn't. Even an unregenerate sinner flipping a television dial during the Sunday morning God slot knows the touch of the Spirit when he sees it. He recognizes it because, like a diamond, it is so rare. There is nothing more tragic than people who don't have an anointing trying to produce it. They try to force it, but the touch of the Lord is just not there. How many times have you traveled to hear a great speaker or Bible teacher only to find out that the person is just an empty shell, that there is nothing but knowledge on the inside? Filled with facts and information but absolutely lifeless, they are walking and talking but their words are dead. I'll never forget what happened at a conference I attended on the West Coast. In an afternoon session a young man was introduced to sing. With a tremendous, well-trained voice he sang The King is Coming. All the people enjoyed it, and they gave him a great applause when he had finished. I don't know how it happened, but in the evening service a lady sang exactly the same song. Frankly, she didn't look like a singer, her voice was a little nasal, and some of the notes were off pitch but she had something else that made up for those deficiencies a thousand times over. By the time she got to the second chorus, people were on their feet. Their hands were raised to heaven. The power in that place was electric. And it didn't stop when she finished. We praised the Lord and praised Him again. Then we began to applaud for the longest time. But we weren't giving the singer an ovation. We were applauding the giver of song. What made the difference? My friend, it was the anointing. It was the power of the Spirit in that lady's life. During my ministry in Canada, we were one of the sponsoring groups of a Billy Graham crusade. The preparations for the meetings were as organized as anything I'd ever seen. And the services themselves were tame compared to what I was used to. But when Graham began to speak, there was an unmistakable touch of the Spirit on his message. The content was Christ but I could tell I was in the presence of a man who has a deep personal fellowship with the Spirit. Words that stunned the synagogue since creation people have been fascinated by the anointing. It has been marveled at, manifested, and even mimicked. But the true anointing has always been and still remains a function of God the Holy Spirit. What is its purpose? So that you might proclaim the message with power. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Isa. 61, 1-2 But those are not just the words of an Old Testament prophet. 
Jesus quoted them to a stunned audience at the synagogue in Nazareth, Luke 4:18-19. You must never forget that to understand the Holy Spirit you must know that He is God. That description may seem foreign to you, but it is as basic as the Word itself. He was the power of creation. Do you recall the words in the book of Job? The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Job 33, 4. While God the Father was in heaven on the throne of glory saying, Let us make man, the Holy Spirit was doing his work on earth. Even the second verse states that at creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, General 1, 2. And the psalmist, speaking of the creatures on earth, wrote, You send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the earth, B.S. 104, 30. If you want the anointing of the Spirit to become evident in your life, it begins with an understanding of who He is, how He operates, and how you can enter into His fellowship. The Holy Spirit was not sent just to make you feel good. He'll certainly do that, but He is much more. He has equality in the Godhead and deserves our worship just as do God the Father and God the Son. But that is just the start. Your spiritual growth is not different from that of a giant oak tree. It must be fed and nourished. What do I do next? Recently a man told me, Benny, I want to thank you for introducing me to the Holy Spirit in 1978. I said, that's great. Tell me what's been happening since. His face was a blank as he said, well, nothing really. I just remember what it was like when I met him. Why do you think nothing has happened? I asked. I'll never forget his reply, I guess I didn't know what to do. Perhaps I've expected every person who's been introduced to the Spirit to respond as I did. I literally shut myself away with the Word and the Spirit and absorbed what he had to offer like a sponge. It took time, hundreds and hundreds of hours with the precious Holy Spirit. I realize that for many people it's nearly impossible to find the time to search and search the Scriptures. But just by reading this book you are receiving in a succinct manner what it took the Spirit years to share with me. But there is one thing I cannot do for you. I can't wave a spiritual wand over your head and place an anointing on you. That only comes with a personal, deeply private encounter with the Spirit. And it continues and grows with a fellowship and communion that only you can establish. Your growth in the Spirit will begin the moment you begin to see that the Spirit of God is truly God. I can't repeat it enough because the mental picture of a weak personality has been drilled into our psyche from childhood. I remember seeing a book that said, the Holy Spirit is a servant to the body of Christ. That's the kind of error I'm talking about. He's not a servant. He's in charge. He's the leader of the body of Christ. Let me share something I have come to know. The Holy Spirit is not only God. He's also the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before you say, now hold it there, Benedictus, let me point you to the Word. You say, I thought God the Father was the Father of Jesus. Well, you're right, but you're also wrong. Let me show you why. In the first chapter of the Gospels we are told that the Holy Ghost is the Father of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit, Matt. 1.18. Even Mary was concerned. Mary said to the angel, how can this be? since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, 
that Holy One who is to be born shall be called the Son of God, Luke 1:34-35. There you have it. He is called the Son of God, but it was the Holy Spirit that came upon the Mother of Christ. That's the closeness of the Trinity a child of God the Father and a child of God the Spirit in one. Even the attributes of Jesus were given him by the Spirit. Speaking of the coming Christ, Isaiah wrote, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Isa. 11, 1-2 Who is the Father? Jesus Christ is a child of the Spirit. And just as earthly parents love their little baby, so the Holy Ghost loved the Lord. Have you ever seen a proud father hold a newborn in his arms, squeeze it tight, and love it? I think we forget that the Holy Spirit has emotions too. He loves what he has created. That's why he wants to place his arms around you. Can you see God the Father in heaven saying to the Spirit, take my son and make him flesh? It was the miracle of miracles. The Holy Spirit took that seed and placed it within Mary's body. But not only was he the Father of the Lord, he was also the one who anointed him. Picture, if you will, God the Father, sitting on his throne in heaven and Jesus on earth healing the sick and performing miracles. And what about the Holy Ghost? He's the channel, the contact between both personalities. Now the Father picks up the phone as if he needed one and says, Holy Spirit? Yes, sir, says the Spirit as he picks up the receiver. God says, I want you to lead Jesus into the wilderness because I'm going to send the devil to test him. The Spirit says, yes, sir, and rushes to Christ. Jesus, come along with me, he says. Do you see how the Holy Spirit is the contact between both personalities? Or picture this. Jesus is walking past a man who is very sick. Again, the Father picks up the phone and says, Holy Spirit? Stop Jesus. Tell him to halt right where he is. The Spirit says, Okay. Jesus, stop. He speaks into the phone and says, Father, what should he do? Tell him to heal that man, says the voice of God. Jesus immediately lays his hands on the man, the power of the Spirit flowing through him, and the man is miraculously raised up. Here is what is vital for you to remember and when you comprehend this it will lift the veil from your eyes regarding the role of the Holy Ghost, on earth Jesus was nothing less than a total man. He did not have revelation knowledge without the voice of the Spirit. And he could not move unless the Holy Spirit moved him. Have you ever wondered why, when Jesus passed by, some did not get healed? Why didn't he pray for them? Why didn't he reach out and touch them? It is because the Father did not ask the Holy Ghost to request that Jesus do it. Christ said, that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do, John 14:31. Jesus was dependent on the Spirit? He was Christ's lifeline to the Father. Was Christ capable of sinning? Even before Christ faced Golgotha, he offered himself to the Father through the Holy Ghost. Comparing the blood of Christ to the sacrifice of animals, Hebrews says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, Heb. 9.14. Had he not offered himself through the Holy Ghost, he would not be accepted in the eyes of God the Father. Nor would he have endured the sufferings of the cross. Had he not presented himself through the Holy Ghost, his blood would not have remained pure and spotless. 
and let me add this, had the Holy Spirit not been with Jesus, he may have likely sinned. That's right. It was the Holy Spirit who was the power that kept him pure. He was not only sent from heaven, but he was called the Son of Man and as such he was capable of sinning. The fact that he did not does not mean that he could not. If you believe that Jesus was not able to sin, then why would Satan waste his time tempting him? The devil knew what he was doing. Without the Holy Ghost Jesus may have never made it. Jesus actually offered himself through the Holy Ghost to remain sinless. He even depended on the Spirit to raise him from the death grip of the grave. Remember what Paul said? Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Rome. 1, 4. It was through the power of the Spirit that Christ was raised from the dead. Here is what scripture says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, Rome. 8.11. Not only did the spirit raise Christ, he is the one who will also raise you. We can rest our hope in him. God's master plan even after he changed the course of history by walking out of the empty tomb, Christ continued to depend on the spirit. In fact, he told the disciples not to leave Jerusalem until they had been endued from on high. He said they should wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, Acts 1, 4-5. Christ was under God's control as he spoke those words. He was repeating what the Father said to the Holy Ghost. So dependent was Christ on the Spirit that he turned to him before giving directions to his followers. Scripture says he was taken to heaven after he gave instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. Acts 1, 2. Don't read me wrong. I am in no way saying that Christ was in a lesser position than the Spirit. Not at all. Jesus is not lower than the Holy Ghost, nor is the Holy Ghost lower than Jesus. There is absolute equality in the Trinity. Each member has unique purposes and characteristics. What I want you to know is that the spirit is not weak. He is not immature or incapable of speaking for himself. The Holy Ghost is perfect, powerful, and glorious. The spirit deserves our worship. We should put into practice what we have been singing about for generations. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. How do you recognize him? It's as simple as that little voice you hear when you are about to fall asleep, the voice that reminds you, you haven't prayed today. Or he may say, you haven't read the word today. That's the spirit speaking, tugging at your soul. You know him already, but he yearns for you to know him more. The Lord predicted what would happen to you when you made a place for the spirit. He said, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, John 7:38. And what was that anointing he was talking about? But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, v. 39. God has a detailed master plan for your life. His anointing and his Spirit are included in the blueprint, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, to core. 121-22. Have you made room for the Holy Spirit? All he asks is a place in your heart. Only a breath away, why doesn't God answer my prayer? Why can't I receive my deliverance and my healing? 
The answer to your most urgent need is close much closer than you ever imagined. Just a word, spoken from your heart, can cause life's darkest clouds suddenly to disappear. It's time to stop thinking that God is an unapproachable spirit residing millions of miles away. The Father is so near that you can talk to Him at any moment, and His Spirit is so close that He can give you comfort, peace, and direction. All you have to do is ask and trust that He will act. What I have found in the Spirit is not some mystery shrouded secret. It is as real as life itself and as close as your very heartbeat. And that's why I want to share it with you. Weakness or will. Let's begin with this fact about the Godhead. What is true of one does not necessarily apply to all three. They are sometimes different, even in the way they move and in the way they talk. We've already discussed the fact that members of the Godhead are distinct persons yet they are one. But when it comes to our personal relationship and communication with God, an understanding of Father, Son, and Spirit is essential. Anytime you see God working, you see Him as one God but you begin to see some distinction in the way they think and in the way they act. For example, when the Jewish people under the Old Covenant willfully and knowingly sinned in the presence of the Father, do you recall what happened? Scripture records that they were either slain or punished. But Christ the Son dealt differently with those who knowingly and willfully sinned. Example, consider the Pharisees. Did Christ kill them? No. He rebuked them. You say, Benny, I always believed that Christ forgave everyone. Scripture doesn't record whether Jesus forgave the Pharisees for their sin. Yet he did forgive the criminal on the cross when he cried from his heart, I'm a sinner. Don't misunderstand. God the Father did forgive, but he also killed or punished those who refused to stop rebelling against him. God the Son, however, responded in another manner. Instead of slaying or judging the willful sinner, he simply rebuked him. You ask, but what about the Holy Ghost? What is his response to a person who knowingly, deliberately sins? He reacts differently from even the Father and the Son. The Spirit does not remove them or rebuke them he convicts them and withdraws the power of his presence. Where should I look? The Trinity, as we see, is composed of three distinct and unique persons. But you need to understand their oneness their unity. It is essential that you recognize that the all-embracing oneness we are talking about is connected to the work and essence of the Godhead. The word makes it clear that there are differences or diversities of administration in the Godhead, yet they are one. Here is how Paul explained it to the church at Corinth, there are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all, I call. 12, 5-6. And when he writes, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, v. 7. Paul was unfolding the working of the Godhead. He explained that the Lord Jesus is the administrator, the Father is the operator, and the Holy Ghost is the manifester. Now that is one of the few times in the Word where Jesus is mentioned first and the Father second in the order of recognition. But let's put them back in the usual order of Scripture. What is the primary work of the Father? He operates. And what about the Son? He administrates the operation of the Father. And the Holy Ghost manifests the administration of that operation. If you need life, to whom do you turn? You look to the Father because he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. You say, Benny, I thought we looked to Jesus. No. The source is the Father. But the giver of that source is Christ. 
and the power of the source is the Holy Spirit. So when you need life, here is what happens. You look up to God the Father and say, Father, give me life, or healing, or deliverance. You see, God is the source of it. Jesus said, Ask the Father in my name. Even though you are approaching God through his Son, it is still the Father you are asking for the gift. And your request goes through the Son to the Father. How is that gift returned? Let's say your request is for healing. God the Father remember now that God is three persons looks at God the Son and says, Would you please heal him? Christ delivers the healing. Why? Because that is the role of the administrator. The very word administrate means to minister or to serve. So the Father releases the healing to the Son, and the Son serves it to you. Can you picture yourself reaching out to receive your healing and finding that somehow it seems just out of your reach? You stretch your arms as far as you can, but the gift seems beyond your grasp. So close and yet so far away. What has happened? What's missing? That's where the work of the Holy Spirit enters the picture. He presents himself to manifest the healing that was provided by God and served by his Son. It is the Spirit who completes the process of your healing. He's by your side it began at Pentecost. The Holy Ghost descended from heaven to make manifest the word of the Godhead. And exactly where is the Spirit today? Where does he make his residence? The Spirit does not stand beside Jesus as many well-intentioned people believe. And he does not stand alongside the Father. He was given to you and to me as the Comforter or the one by our side. The Holy Spirit is your helper. Yes, he is your assistant to help you receive the life, the healing, or the deliverance you so desperately need. Often someone asks, Benny, who should I pray to? My answer, is, please don't confuse the issue. You pray to the Father. Well, then, the seeker says, you told us we are to talk to the Spirit. I have to tell them, there is an enormous difference between talking and praying. I've never yet prayed to the Holy Ghost. Do you know what the meaning of the word prayer is? Prayer means petition. In other words you come with your need asking for an answer. You come looking and expect to receive. You never look to the Spirit he's the one who helps you look. To this day I have never said, Holy Spirit, give me. But I can't count the times I've said, precious Holy Spirit, help me ask. Are you beginning to realize that your answer is only a breath away? Just a word, waiting to be spoken. It may be a physical problem that has tormented you for years. Or it may be a habit that seems impossible to break. The answer you need is near at hand. Isn't it time you turn to the Spirit of God and say, Holy Spirit, you are my helper. I need you. Will you help me now? The very second you utter those words from your heart, the Holy Ghost will place his hand on you and something marvelous will happen. Suddenly you will find yourself literally in the Spirit absorbed in his presence and his person. Three little words when the Father gives you something, it comes of the Father. And when the Son gives you something, it is usually described as coming through Jesus. But when the Holy Ghost provides, it is given in him. Av, through, in just three little words, but they are mighty and powerful. As you read God's word, the pattern is striking. When we see the Father spoken of, it is in terms of the love of God, the power of God, the grace of God. That's how God is presented again and again. But how is Christ portrayed? Often in scripture we are taught that we give praise through the Son, receive through the Son, and so on. When it comes to the Holy Ghost, however, the terminology changes. 
the word in is used. Walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, Galans 5.16. And if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit, v. 25. As Christ said to the Samaritan woman at the well, the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him, John 4.23. Here, the word in simply means at one with. In other words, Christ said that the Father seeks those that worship and are at one with the Spirit. Are you walking at one with the Spirit? Are you living at one with the Spirit? Reaching that relationship is not difficult. It is as simple as saying to the great helper, help me. That's when the Spirit of God will touch you and actually assist you as you reach out to receive what God wants you to have. What is important in all of this is that you realize that the Trinity is actually working together to accomplish one goal to meet your need. They are Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but they are one. They are a team of persons, united in one nature, working together, in complete accord and eternal harmony. It is because the Holy Ghost is here on earth and by your side that you keep the healing or deliverance you have received. That is why Jesus could return to heaven, and yet you can retain on earth the gift he has given. If you want to know how to maintain a close relationship with the Holy Spirit, listen to the word of the great prophet Haggai, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear, Hag. 2, 5. When you ask the Son of God to come into your heart, you are making a personal covenant with God. And it's not a one-way conversation. God also makes an agreement or a covenant with you. That's the way he has always worked. The Father initiated covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, David, and many others. But just as God has sought to enter into agreements, so has humanity reached out to God. That is what we discover with Jacob, Joshua, Elijah, and the Israelites. As the Israelites confessed their sins to God, they said, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy. We are in great distress. Nay. 932-37 Then Nehemiah told the Lord, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant, and write it. And our leaders and our Levites and our priests seal it. V. 38 It was signed by no fewer than 84 leaders who swore to have entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord. 1029. Covenants with God were ratified by a variety of acts including standing Zra 1014, loosing the shoe Ruth 4, 7-11, giving a feast General 26, 30, erecting a monument General 31, 45-53, and taking an oath Joshua 2-12-14. Perhaps the most important covenant of all is the one God made to you through his Son when he brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Heb. 13.20. A word of warning. But just as God has a covenant regarding your salvation, you can make a vow or oath with God that deals with your personal needs. I've made a number of commitments to God. And I believe that God recognizes the sincerity of a commitment when you state categorically what you're willing to do in response to his blessing. One fact is obvious. The Old Testament is filled with covenants that pleased God. And why is that important to you? Because God works by and through covenants, 
and you can enter into a covenant with him regarding any special need. You will find that the Father is more than willing to stand by his word. I have come to believe that the Holy Spirit enters your life as the result of the eternal covenant God made with you regarding your salvation. He is God's messenger and Christ's to you from that moment on. And that agreement is to be taken seriously. Remember what happened to Samson. After Delilah had his head shaved while he was sleeping, she shouted, single quote the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep, and said, I will go out as before, at other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him, Jud. 1620. What had departed was the same Spirit of the Lord that came mightily upon him earlier, Jud. 1514. Can you imagine being in that spot? You think you're filled, but you're not. You believe you're anointed, but the Spirit is gone. Samson was totally unaware that he had betrayed his calling and his covenant with God. He believed he still had strength, but the Spirit had vanished from his life. The same thing happened to Saul. The Lord rejected Saul as king because he has turned back from following me, and has not performed my commandments, 1 Sam. 15:11. Not only did the Spirit leave the king, but something far worse happened, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him, 1 Sam. 16:14. The vacuum will be filled Do you know that every unbeliever is greatly influenced by demons? It sounds shocking. But that's what scripture says, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, if, 2, 1-2. You say, but that could never happen to me. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. That may be true, but if for any reason the presence of the Holy Spirit leaves you, a vacuum is created and that is exactly what Satan is looking for. Then his influence turns to oppression. Nobody likes to talk about demons. Preachers don't preach about them. Christians don't discuss them. And sinners erase the dreadful topic from their minds. It's like a politician avoiding the subjects of drugs and crime, thinking that somehow they will just go away. But Christ addressed the issue without fear. He talked about how demons are eager to invade your life. Jesus said to the Pharisees, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and well there, Matt. 1243-45. Listen closely to what the Lord says next and the last state of the man is worse than the first, v. 45. Satan's plan of attack is this, every demon that is left will pay a return visit to see if the opportunity is still available. And if he is given a chance he will bring others with him. It's a frightening situation, but one that you can avoid by staying completely, totally filled with the Holy Spirit and never breaking your covenant with God. Do you remember the story of the disciples who failed in their attempt to heal a small child? It was while Christ was on the Mount of Transfiguration being glorified. And when the Master came down from the mountain, the father of the boy said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him, Matt. 1715-16.
but more than a physical healing was needed. Christ said, Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and he came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour, vv. 17-18. The Lord not only wants to remove Satan and his demons from your life those things that are a barrier to your healing and deliverance but he wants to fill that empty void. That's why he sent the Comforter. He wants you to be filled with the Spirit. Right now, the Spirit is on earth. In fact he is waiting patiently for your invitation. All it takes is just a word, even a whisper. Holy Spirit, please help me. Your answer is only a breath away. Why are you weeping? Benny, can blasphemy against the Father be forgiven? A new Christian asked recently. Yes, I answered. What about blasphemy against the Son? That can be forgiven too, I said. Then can you tell me why blasphemy against the Holy Ghost can't be forgiven? For many people the topic is troublesome. But the Spirit has given me freedom from the fear of committing the unpardonable sin. He unlocked my understanding with such a revelation that I no longer worry over the subject. He was quietly weeping. In the winter of 1974 God opened my eyes to a tremendous truth regarding the nature of the Holy Spirit and why the Father and the Son gave the ultimate warning to those who would blaspheme the Spirit. I was in prayer when suddenly I knew that the Spirit of God was in my room, and I felt he was weeping. I know it sounds strange, and I must confess I don't fully understand it. But I do remember that I was on my knees when I felt his presence and sensed that he was quietly weeping. You say, well, how did you know it was the Spirit? For me to question the reality of that moment would be to question my salvation. That's how real that experience was. I can't explain it or comprehend it, but I know it happened. The experience was so real that I literally turned my face to the left and said, Spirit of the Lord, why are you weeping? There was no answer. And at that moment the tears began flowing down my own cheeks. Through my watering eyes I asked him again, Spirit of the Lord, why are you weeping? Then suddenly my entire being began to cry out. It was no longer just is. The reality of what I felt was so great I began to groan. The feeling came from deep inside. It was as if I were heartbroken like a person who has just lost a son or a daughter. The deep sobbing would not stop. I was weeping at night and could not sleep. And it continued, not for hours but for days. It wasn't planned, and, truthfully, I couldn't understand why the tears were so uncontrollable. In all, the experience lasted for more than three weeks. The burden became heavier and heavier. I felt as if someone had taken a thousand pound load, strapped it on my back, pulled tight its belts, locked it with a key, and left me alone to struggle. If anything, it felt as if I was overburdened with an oppressive, heavy load of grief. That's the only way to describe it a weight of grief. Pacing the floor I felt like the psalmist when he wrote, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. P.S. 6, 6. There I was, grieving and not knowing why, pacing the floor and searching for a reason. I looked up and said, Lord, why? I prayed to be released from this unexplainable weight on my shoulders. At that moment God Almighty transformed that heaviness of grief into a burden for lost souls that I had never known before. What began with my turning to ask the Holy Spirit, why are you weeping? Ended with a life-changing burden for the lost that has never left me not once to this day. I came away from that experience even though I still do not understand it fully convinced that the Holy Spirit grieves for the world.
I am fully persuaded that with tears he searches for servants to spread God's love. I believe that the spirit of the Father's heart is breaking with the needs of mankind. Perhaps for those weeks he allowed me just a glimpse of his agony for the lost. There was no question of what was to be the future of Benny Hinn. I knew that I must preach the message of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I have not stopped doing it since. The Spirit is so special that when he finds a person that he can use, he allows them to feel his heartbeat. When you have felt the pain that the Holy Ghost feels, it clings to your consciousness and will never leave you. You not only see the needs of mankind, you feel those desperate needs as never before. But I believe there was another reason that God allowed me to endure that lesson. It opened my eyes to why the Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity and yet is different from the Father and the Son. And it made it possible for me to fit together the pieces of the puzzle called the unpardonable sin. Insult and slander exactly what does scripture say? Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men, Matt. 1230-31. Then, making it even clearer, he said, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come, v. 32. What does the word blasphemy encompass? The word has several meanings, including to speak evil to rail or scoff to revile or to abuse, reproach or speak profanity of to defame to speak with injury to slander or to accuse falsely to insult some may ask, how do you defame the Holy Ghost? Or how do you insult him? It is a willful act. The book of Hebrews speaks directly to the issue, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Heb. 1026-29. The words are followed by this stern reminder, for we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, single quote the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, vv. 30-31. What a difference why is there no forgiveness for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Throughout the pages of this book I have shared with you from scripture that there is a uniqueness a difference in the Holy Ghost. He is not higher nor lower than the Father or the Son, but we must come to know his characteristics. God Almighty, the Father, is the great God of heaven and must be worshipped, praised, glorified, magnified, and uplifted. Jesus, his Son, is the Lord of glory, whom even the angels fear to look upon. I feel also that the Holy Spirit has the capacity to feel human emotions even pain, grief, and anguish with an intensity that is known uniquely to him. You say, do you mean that the Holy Ghost can feel heartache in a different way than the Father, and the Son? Scripture does not say, grieve not the Father or the Son. It is always, grieve not the Spirit. Why? I believe it is because he is touched in a deep, profound way that somehow varies from what the other members of the Godhead experience.
the very fact that Jesus said that a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, indicates that the Holy Ghost can become wounded. Why is it that the Father would say, you have vexed my spirit? In other words, God's spirit was afflicted or tormented. And scripture records that he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them, is a 63, 10. Why is it that the Holy Ghost seems to be so protected? Perhaps it is because God the Father knows how tender the Spirit is. It is almost as though God the Father was saying, if you touch him, I'll never forgive you. Why is the Holy Ghost so shielded by Christ that Jesus would say, my blood will wash every sin but that? He even said, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, Mark 3:29. Why? Again it is because the Holy Spirit is different and his heart can so easily be touched with pain. But may I give you a word of comfort? Before Jesus ever talked about blasphemy, he made a very important statement you should read once again. He said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad, Matt. 12.30. If you are working for Christ, you do not fall into the category of his warning. When the Lord spoke on the topic of blasphemy, he made it absolutely clear that he was admonishing people who were not working with him. Ask yourself, am I with him? If the answer is yes, then ask, do I gather souls for him? If the answer is still yes, you can say, then I will never blaspheme the spirit. Are you worried? A teenage girl once came to me convinced she had blasphemed the Holy Ghost. Are you worried? I asked her. Yes, she said with a troubled look. Young lady, I said. The very fact that you are worried means that you did not blaspheme the spirit. You see, blasphemy is an act of the will that does not carry worry with it. Blasphemy is cursing Jesus and saying, I don't care what he did. It is saying, who cares how precious the blood is. Blasphemy is insulting what God did and doing it willfully. You say, well, Benny, how do I know I'll never commit that sin? You will not commit that sin as long as you never want to commit it. Look closely at what Christ said. He said anyone who speaks against the Spirit will not be forgiven. That word is vital to Christ's message. To speak indicates a deliberate act. It's more than an idle thought. Your entire body becomes involved in the act of uttering a word. If the Spirit is blasphemed, he is reviled by those who have made a decision to blaspheme. It's an act of volition, a choice you must exercise. Where is Satan in all of this? From dealing with people as a minister, I know how the devil comes to people and tries to fill their minds with evil thoughts about the Holy Ghost. Would you expect any less of him? Perhaps it has happened to you. Have you ever had some unbecoming thought enter your mind that you wish had never come? Who launched that evil thought in your direction? Of course it was Satan. But did you speak that thought out loud? No. The reason you kept silent was that it was not your thought. It is the person who speaks against the Holy Ghost who has made a decision to blaspheme. It is the one who says, I'm going to blaspheme, and I don't care what God thinks. Saul blasphemed the Holy Ghost when he rejected the word of God. Demas, one of Paul's companions, blasphemed when he turned his back on the gospel and returned to the lusts of the flesh. Paul wrote, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, to Tim. 4.10. Don't let him leave you say, you have been telling us that we can't blaspheme. What about Saul and Demas?
The point I am making is that you can't blaspheme as long as you decide to live for Jesus and stick with it. The road to eternity is littered with people who start out with Christ and end up with Satan. They are those who walk an aisle and shake a preacher's hand as some kind of an insurance policy on a mansion in heaven. But their hearts did not follow their actions. Soon you find those same people falling in love with lust or money or the glitter of the world. And they say, God, I'm leaving. You may wonder, how do I know that the Holy Spirit is still with me? And how will I know when and if he has departed? It is a device of Satan to attack you and fill your mind with the words, the Holy Spirit has left you. He's gone forever. You'll never have him back. But don't accept that. Here's how you can know that the Spirit is still with you. This has been a great help to me and I believe it will be to you. First, the scriptures tell us the Holy Spirit abides with every believer as counselor and source of peace. Second, are you aware of the presence of Jesus in your life? Then the Holy Ghost has not left. Do you still hear the Spirit of God say, pray? He hasn't left. Do you sometimes feel guilty about not reading the word? He has not departed. In fact, he's convicting you. Have you met someone and felt the urge to tell the person about Jesus? He's still there. Jesus was not speaking a contradiction when he said the Spirit will be with you forever. He was speaking of the fact that the Spirit's role is permanent even eternal. You see, if you blaspheme him, the Spirit will depart. But if you grieve him, he doesn't leave you. He'll stay, even when you wound him. I believe Christians grieve the Spirit every day. I, for one, am guilty. Grieving the Holy Ghost is the sin of the church. That's why Paul said to the church, do not grieve the Spirit. He was not addressing those words to unbelievers. What if I should fail? You may ask, how do we grieve him? You grieve him when you don't forgive. You grieve him when you say something ugly or wrong. But your daily prayer should be, blessed Spirit of God, please help me today not to grieve you. And what if you should fail? He is more than willing to hear you say, please forgive me. And he will forgive and cleanse you seventy times seven. The Holy Spirit is so gentle that even the slightest wound will cause him pain. And the longer you've known him, the more you will understand his feelings. So many times, in tears, I say, Holy Spirit, I'm sorry for the anguish I've caused you. But please, please, stay by my side. There are times I've told him, you can chastise me, but don't let me go. For whom the Lord chastises he loves. It's like saying, I love you. I believe that if a person remains in a state of unforgiveness the Spirit of the Lord will allow tormentors to enter him. That's what Christ told Peter when the disciple asked, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Matt. 18.21. The Lord answered, I do not say to you, up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. V. 22. Then he gave the parable of the unforgiving servant, which ends with the warning, Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, and delivered him to the torturers, until he should pay all that was due to him, vv. 33-34. Christ concluded the parable by saying, So my heavenly Father will do to you if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother, v. 35. Does this mean that the Holy Ghost has made a permanent retreat? No. It's just that God will remove his hand of protection from those who won't forgive. 
a person who has totally blasphemed the Holy Spirit becomes filled with the demons of Satan. But if you ask, Benny, do you believe that a demon can possess a Christian who is filled with the Holy Ghost? Absolutely not. I do believe, however, that a person who has made a confession of faith in Christ, but is not living for the Lord who is living in unforgiveness can be influenced by demons. They can be harassed and even oppressed by the powers of darkness, but not possessed. Peter, for example, said, Lord, you're not going to die. And Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. Peter was not possessed by Satan. He was influenced. There is a big difference. Jesus said, Through the Spirit, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that, my friend, is good news. And since he is staying, it is more important to know what he will do for us than what Satan will do against us. You can't do it alone I am certain that it is your utmost desire to love God with your spirit, soul, and body. But no matter how strong your desire, it is absolutely impossible to accomplish your goal all alone. It is imperative that you say, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to assist me. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, Rome. 5, 5. Certainly we want to love Christ, but it is impossible unless the Spirit gives us supernatural love. And how do you receive it? You simply say, Spirit of God, I surrender to you. By that very act he will flood your soul with a love for the Lord. The more deeply you know the Holy Spirit, the more deeply you will know Jesus. It's automatic. Why? Because when the Spirit is present, Christ is promoted. Jesus said, He shall glorify me. The Lord is never pushed aside, but rather he is pulled much closer. Paul wrote, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, Rome. 8, 1. Do you understand what it truly means to walk after the Spirit? When he says, Pray, that's what you'll do. When he says, Testify, that's what you'll do. Suddenly, you're walking after the Spirit. To disobey is to feel condemnation and then guilt. But if you heed his call, you know the joy of freedom in the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, v. 2. The lawgiver in the old covenant was the Father, but the lawgiver in the new covenant is the Holy Ghost. Jesus gave the commandments through the Spirit, Acts 1, 2, just as God once gave the law through Moses. 7 Revelations What a joy to dwell on the victories described by Paul in Romans 8. In fact Paul shares 7 specific revelations in the first 16 verses of his letter. Perhaps nowhere in scripture is the work of the Spirit so clearly defined. 1. There is power over sin. The first revelation says that the law of the Spirit of life gives you freedom from sin and death vv. 1-2. You'll have dominion over sin. 2. He will fulfill the law. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit vv. 3-4. It is the fulfillment of the law of Moses that has produced the freedom we now have in the spirit. 3. He will give you the mind of God. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, 
but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, vv. 5-8. 4. He will give you righteousness. But you are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness, vv. 9-10. 5. He will give life to your body. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, v. 11. If you follow in the footsteps of the Holy Ghost, you will walk in health. You will have a quickened body. As the prophet Isaiah said, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, 40, 31. My friend, you cannot renew your strength without the Holy Ghost because he is the one who quickens the mortal body. 6. He will bring death to self. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, vv. 12-14. 7. He will testify of your salvation. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, vv. 15-16. In verse after verse Paul tells you that it is the Spirit that does the work of the Father and the Son. And I get excited every time I read those glorious words, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. God does not intend for you to stray from the path he has set for you to follow. He did not create you to see you fail. That's why you should not become unduly alarmed by the possibility of committing the unpardonable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Your love for Christ so outweighs Satan's influence that the battle has already been won. The Holy Spirit is longing for you to begin a deep, personal relationship. When my soul cried out with a heartfelt sobbing that seemed unending, the Spirit was patiently waiting. His burden became my burden, and the experience gave me a passion for souls that has never diminished nor departed. He was waiting to give me power, fulfillment, righteousness, a Spirit-led life, and so much more. And now He is waiting for you. Heaven on Earth Why First Sermons in 1974 and early 1975 did not have much content. They were basically my testimony of the work of the Spirit of how He made Himself so real to me. In those days I really didn't know too much, and there was so much to learn. But during 1975 I heard the unmistakable voice of the Holy Spirit telling me that it was time to begin conducting weekly meetings in Toronto. He said, follow me. Hear my voice and you will lead many to Christ. And so I began. On Monday nights we scheduled a series of services that would continue for the next five years. We started in a high school auditorium, and the crowds became so large we had to move to larger facilities. Hundreds and hundreds of people attended. The services were totally led by the Spirit, and I listened ever so closely to His voice. People were delivered from serious addictions. Families were reunited. We had healing lines and heard testimonies of miracles. But always, always, the services resulted in the salvation of lost souls. 
Then something happened. People began to receive miracles, deliverance, and healings right in their seats. No times for the laying on of hands. God began to do his work all across the auditorium so freely that there was not time to hear all of the testimonies. The press began to take notice. On the front pages of the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and other papers across Canada there were stories of the miracle rallies we were conducting. In December 1976 the Globe and Mail sent a reporter to one of the services to describe in detail what was happening. He wrote of the healings and testimonies and ended the article by quoting me, I'm not interested in building up Benny Hinn. I'm not and never will be. Jesus is the one. To be built up and exalted. We want to reach souls for the Lord Jesus. I want to see souls, 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 souls. People, do you understand that? Under the headline, Does Faith Healing Really Work? The Toronto Star presented 4K studies of people who had been healed in our services. He told about a shift worker at the GM plant in Oshawa who had cancer of the throat. This week, following a checkup at the cancer clinic, he was told there is no trace of malignancy. He told the story of a Beavertant trucker, an M churchgoer, who had suffered from congestive heart failure and slight emphysema a lung disease for seven years, was persuaded by friends to attend a healing crusade. I went to the doctor three days later, and he told me he could find nothing wrong, he says. God must have done it. What about their doctors? The reporter quoted one as saying, look, there are more things happening in this world than we know about. Television stations began to film documentaries on what God was doing. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, Global TV, and the huge independent station in Toronto, Channel 9, produced specials. We ran our own weekly television program that was shown in prime time after 60 minutes for a year and a half. A yellow cab in Pittsburgh leaving the great city of Toronto in 1979 was not easy for me. It was where I had been saved, healed, and touched by the mighty Spirit of God. The press had nothing but good news to report about the ministry. But again, I promised to follow the leading of the Holy Ghost. I knew he wanted me to build a church and establish an international ministry. He had told me this years earlier, in 1977. I remember exactly where it happened. I was back in Pittsburgh, riding in a big yellow cab when I had a conversation with the Spirit about it. About the ministry he said, it will touch the world. I wondered, where will it be? New York? Los Angeles? But, you know, the Spirit has an amazing way of leading you. In July 1978 I traveled to Orlando, Florida, to speak for Pastor Roy he told me about his daughter, Suzanne, who was attending Evangel College in Springfield, Missouri. Being single, my ears perked up. I invited myself back to spend Christmas with them, and Suzanne was home for the holidays. The first time I saw her, the Lord said, that's your wife. Just like that. I felt it. And she did too. But I had to be sure so I began to ask God for signs. I'd put out fleeces and every one of them was answered. I thought, is this just coincidence? Or does God really want me to marry this young lady? Then I tried one last sign a rather difficult one. I was flying back to Orlando from San Jose, California, on January 1, 1979. I made a quick trip there to speak at a New Year's Eve service. On the plane I had a talk with God. I said, if she really is to be my wife, have her say to me when I get back.
I've made you a cheesecake. That was the toughest test I could think of. Suzanne met me at the Orlando airport, and the first words out of her mouth were, Benny, I've made you a cheesecake. Then she said, don't expect too much. I've never made a cheesecake before. We were engaged within two weeks and married later that year. As time passed, all signs pointed to Orlando, Florida, as the place we would begin a worldwide ministry. With just a handful of people, the Orlando Christian Center was started in 1983. Now it touches the lives of thousands of people every week, plus a national television audience. He's not a promoter to be honest, I had no idea where the spirit would lead my life when I began my relationship with him. All I knew was that he was real and desired my fellowship. He wanted to be my teacher and guide. But here is what I have come to know. The Holy Ghost will never promote himself. He'll promote Jesus. He will never create the place of greatness just for himself. He'll give the honor to the Lord. I've also learned that the Spirit is not the source of God's gifts. He is the one who helps you receive from the Giver, who is God the Father. He's also the one who helps you receive God the Son as Savior and Lord. Even an unbeliever senses the power of the Holy Ghost. I've talked to hundreds of people about their conversion experiences, and so many have told me, something was happening that I couldn't explain. I felt uncomfortable about things I was doing. That's the convicting power of the Spirit. The Lord said, My Spirit shall not strive with man forever, General 6, 3. There is a wrestling going on as the Holy Ghost tries to let you know that you need the Lord. That's why people are so uncomfortable in the presence of God before they are saved. The Spirit is actually a witness for Jesus. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, John 15:26. The Spirit's vital purpose is to lead people to Christ. The Spirit convicts and convinces. I've met people who have left a gospel meeting and felt literally hounded by the Holy Spirit. They felt miserable in their sin. They felt a continual tugging at their hearts. The Spirit wouldn't let them go until they had made their peace with God through His Son. He will enter your mind and present the truth of Scripture, convincing you of the validity of the Gospel. And after you have given your heart to Christ, He is still right there, helping you witness for the Lord. The prophet Micah wrote, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Mick. 3, 8. He gives you the power to speak. In fact, it's useless to attempt to proclaim God's word without the Holy Ghost upon you. Help me. When you say, Holy Spirit, help me to know Jesus, he will not disappoint you. He is always willing to help. Listen to what the psalmist says, do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me, B.S. 51, 11. Then, in the very next breath, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Slash and uphold me with your generous spirit, v. 12. The Holy Ghost is willing. Anytime you say, Help me, he says, I will. When you say, Teach me, he says, I'm ready. And when you say, Help me to pray, he says, Let's begin. He is right there, giving you the desire to pray. He is the urging behind the hunger to talk to the Father and to the Son. Paul wrote these powerful words, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, 1 Cor. 12, 3.
When you sing, He is Lord, and mean it from your heart, it's proof that the Holy Ghost is within you. He's using you to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the whole world. The moment you confess the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ you have passed the test of the Spirit. Scripture says, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not from God, 1 John 4, 2-3. He says, by this we know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error, v. 6. Your salvation is at the very heart of the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it is he that actually adopts you into God's family. Paul writes, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, Rome. 8.14-15. And here is how you express it. By him we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness, with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together, vv. 15-17. Up for adoption the Spirit looked at you and saw an orphan. He said, I will adopt you. He's your father. Why? Because he is the Spirit of the Father. Do you remember Dottie Rambo's song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. She was inspired to write, Omnipotent Father of mercy and grace. That's what the Spirit is. Without him it is impossible to approach the Father. Paul tells you, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father, if. 2.18. Through whom? Through Jesus, both Jew and Gentile can approach God by the Holy Ghost. But here's the most exciting part of all. The Bible says that the Holy Ghost has been given to you as a guarantee of eternal life. Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory, if. 113-14. There's no doubt about it. The Holy Spirit is preparing you for heaven. If you're convinced he's living inside, then you must never question whether you are born again. You must never question whether your home is heaven. And you must never question whether you will have eternal life. Let me put it this way. If tomorrow morning you walk into a store and pick out some clothes and a pair of shoes but don't have all the money, you walk over to layaway and make a down payment toward the purchase. You say, I'll pick it up next week. Your name is on the bill, and you take the receipt home. Then next week you pick up the purchased possession. That's exactly what Jesus did when he came and gave you the Holy Ghost. The only difference is that he paid the entire price on Calvary. But here's what he says, I paid for your life, but I'm also giving a down payment that guarantees it's mine. He sent the Holy Spirit. And if you have him, you are on your way to glory. When Christ returns, he's going to pick you up and take you home. It's worth shouting about. You are a purchased possession of the Lord. That's why you can tell Satan to his ugly face, don't touch me. I'm a possession of Christ. And don't be afraid to speak the word. Kick him out, and he will flee from you. You have the Holy Spirit. A deposit on your inheritance. Why was he given as a down payment? Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Galans 3.13. And then he wrote this marvelous truth, 
He redeemed us in order that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. V. 14. Because Christ became a curse, the Spirit was given as promised. You need some help from the moment you accept Jesus as Savior, it is the Spirit that gives you the will, the strength, and the desire to obey God and live the Christian life. Without Him it is impossible. The Apostle Peter tells you, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, 1 Peter 1:22. The reason people even Christians fail is that they depend on their own strength. You can't obey God by saying, I'm going to do it by myself. How many times have you said, I'm going to pray, but you didn't? Or, I'll read the word, but you forgot. Why? Because you were depending on your mind. You depended on the flesh, and it will fail you continually. He'll give you strength and life, but the Spirit will give you something else just as important. He'll give you rest. Isaiah said, as a beast goes down into the valley, and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people, to make yourself a glorious name. Isa. 63, 14 Just after I began to preach the gospel, I met David Dupulisa. He was known as Mr. Pentecost as a result of his presentations of the Holy Spirit to world religious leaders. He was a charismatic before anyone knew what the word meant. I was walking down the same hallway with this anointed man at a conference in Brockville, Ontario, when I summoned the courage to stop him and ask a question. I nervously asked him, Dr. Dupulisi, how can I truly please God? The old man, who is now with Jesus, stopped, put his briefcase down, pointed his finger in my chest and pushed me against the wall. I certainly didn't expect that from a frail preacher. All I had said was, how can I please God? And he nailed me to the wall. Then he said two words that I have never forgotten. He said, don't try. He picked up his little case and walked on down the hall. I caught up with him and said, Dr. Dupulisi, I don't understand. He calmly turned around and said, young man, it's not your ability. It's his ability in you. Then he said, good night, and walked into his room. As I walked into my room, I was still puzzled. I lay down on my bed and thought about those words. It's not your ability. It's his ability in you. In that moment I hardly knew what to pray, but the Spirit began to unlock the truth of those words to me. How can I please God? By yielding. By not even trying. It was just as Mr. Pentecost said. The Holy Spirit will do the work. It's not my strength. It's His. Otherwise I would boast of my own accomplishments. God's touch when you see Jesus face to face, you won't say, Lord, look what I did. You'll say, Lord, look what you did with this wretched man. Start practicing it. Open your arms wide and say, Spirit of the living God, I want to live for Jesus today. I give you my mind, my emotion, my will, my intellect, my lips, my mouth, my ears, and my eyes use them for the glory of God. When I wake up and pray that kind of prayer, the anointing floods me like an ocean at high tide. In the moment I totally surrender, God begins to flow through my ministry. Nothing less will do. I have often wondered why, in my own meetings, the Spirit directs me so often to pray for our healing. And I have wondered why my ministry has been accompanied by people who fall under the power of the Holy Spirit. But when I look at the results of the meetings, I see that every manifestation of the Spirit is for one purpose, 
to bring people to Christ. It is a demonstration that God is alive, that he is still moving in the lives of people. I have seen thousands of people literally fall under the power of the Spirit, and I believe that just a small touch of God's power is all they felt. But it demonstrates the awesome strength of the Almighty, and it draws people to the Savior. Being healed or even being slain in the Spirit is not a prerequisite for heaven. There is only one door Christ the Lord. Never take your attention from the purpose of the Spirit on earth. He is the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son, leading people to confess that Christ is Lord. As I began my ministry I never ceased to be amazed at the power of the Holy Spirit. He's gentle, but he's powerful. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Isa. 47. The Holy Ghost is not a weak personality. As both a young Christian and a new minister I often stood back and watched the Lord at work. I knew it wasn't me that was touching lives. It was the sovereignty of God and the operation of the Spirit. I just watched in amazement. But I don't think I've been as frightened in my life as that Sunday night in April 1975. There I was on the platform of a small Pentecostal church on the west side of Toronto when my parents Costandy and Clements walked in the door. My heart almost stopped, and I could feel the perspiration on my forehead. My worst nightmare could not have matched this. I was petrified too startled to laugh and too shocked to cry. What must they be thinking? I had been preaching for five months, but my parents had no idea. The tension in our house over the Lord was bad enough without my breaking that news. But they saw an ad the pastor placed in the newspaper and walked into that little church. I couldn't even glance in their direction. But the moment I opened my mouth to preach, the anointing of the Holy Spirit filled that building. It was so strong. Words began flowing out of me like a river. I found myself actually listening to what the Spirit directed me to say. As I was finishing my message, I felt led to begin ministering to people who needed healing. I thought, what must my mom and dad be thinking of all this? Then they stood up and walked out the back door. Jim, I said after the service, you've got to pray. Jim Pointer was with me on the platform that night and knew the seriousness of the situation. I even thought of spending the night at his home to avoid the inevitable confrontation. Instead, I got into my car and began to drive the streets of Toronto. I thought, if I get home in the middle of the night, my folks will be sleeping. It was just after two o'clock in the morning when I quietly parked in front of the house and turned off the ignition. I tiptoed up the steps and slowly unlocked the front door. I opened it and was startled by what I saw. There in front of me, seated on the couch, were my mom and dad. I had been panic-stricken when I saw them walk into that church, but this was even worse. My knees began to tremble, and I looked for a place to sit down. My father was the first to speak and I listened in disbelief. Son, he softly said, how can we become like you? Was I hearing what I thought I was hearing? Was this the same man that had been so offended by my conversion? The father that had absolutely forbidden the name of Jesus to be spoken in our home? We really want to know, he said. Tell us how we can have what you have. I looked at my dear mother and saw tears begin to fall down her beautiful cheeks. I couldn't contain my joy at that moment. I began to weep. And for the next hour of that unforgettable night I opened the scripture and led my parents to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. My daddy said, Benny, do you know what convinced me? 
he told me that when I began preaching, he turned to my mother and said, that's not your son. Your son can't talk. His God must be real. He didn't know that I had been totally healed of stuttering. The marvelous conversion of my parents allowed the Lord to literally sweep through the rest of the family. Henry showed up and got saved. My little brother Mike was born again. Then it happened to Chris. If you've ever heard about household salvation, this was it. The Hin home was transformed into heaven on earth. And the change was not temporary. It was a permanent work of the Spirit. Today Chris, Willie, Henry, Sammy, and Mike are totally involved in ministry. Mary and Rose are committed Christians and living for the Lord. And Benny. Well, you know what has happened to him. First things first just as the Holy Spirit touched my life and drew my parents to Christ, he wants the same for you. The greatest work of the Spirit is not to lead you into some heavenly ecstasy on earth. That may happen, but his purpose is to convict of sin and lead people to Jesus. As you have been reading this book you may have said, that's for me. I want to have an exciting personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. But are you ready for it? What happened to me the night the Spirit entered my bedroom was not the first step. It began much earlier. You've got to put first things first and touch every step on your spiritual ladder. My friend, if you have never asked Christ to come into your heart, now is the time. It's the most important step you will ever take. Right now, say, Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner. I believe that you are the Son of God and that you shed your precious blood on the cross for me. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse my heart from all unrighteousness. I thank you for saving me now. Amen. If you have spoken that prayer from your heart, you are ready to begin a new life in the Spirit. And every day as you pray, read God's Word, and tell others of His love, you will sense God's exciting direction. I have come to the conclusion that I am totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. He's all I have. He's all you have. Jesus promised Him and God sent Him that you may have knowledge power, communion, and fellowship. He will anoint you, help you, breathe on you, comfort you, give you rest, lead and guide you, help you pray, and so much more. He is waiting to begin a relationship with you that will change your life forever. But it's up to you to extend the invitation. When the sun comes up tomorrow, he will be longing to hear you say, Good morning, Holy Spirit.